Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, I'm back. I'm back from my exclusive tour of the East Coast, and I'm here to tell you we hardly exist in the eyes of those New Yorkers. I don't mean that as a slap, just an observation. Like there's this great uh, New Yorker magazine cover, it's famous cover, and it has the uh, the view of the rest of the country from New York. And it starts kind of with the landscape of like the uh, the uh, Upper East Side and Central Park and you know see some of the buildings, the landscape and the skyline of New York City and then then there's the Hudson River and then uh, and then it's nothing. You know, it, there's just nothing after that. I was uh, waking up in the early parts of the morning, writing a column, and then uh, spending some time with the kids and Anna sightseeing in New York City in the last week or so. It was a great trip. I'm exhausted. I'm happy to be home. Exhausting, uh, you know, being a tourist. Muggy, warm weather. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you what the, uh, what the scene was what the game conditions were in New York City. But um, happy to be home and happy to be talking about what is important to you and what is important to me. I need to catch up on some topics ranging from Pat Fitzgerald and Northwestern football to what the Blazers' current mindset is with the Damian Lillard trade possibility and the Pac-12's ongoing media rights saga and a looming media rights day. A week from Friday, this show will be live from Las Vegas from Resorts World Casino, and we will be bringing you a lineup that features 24 Pac-12 athletes and 12 coaches a week from Friday. I'll be on the scene as we are every year. Nobody will cover it like we do. You just need to leave it locked in here 3 o'clock on Friday, a week from Friday, where we will bring you the scene. But i got to say, I'm just going to kind of give you a laundry list of what I saw in the last week or so as it pertains to sightseeing in New York City. And then I want to get to all the stuff I missed because I've got a lot of opinions. And that's the that's the problem, I guess the blessing and the curse, of being a sports columnist and a radio show host. You are always looking for material. Adrian Wojnarowski, who's now at ESPN as the NBA guru, was my predecessor at the Fresno Bee. He was a sports columnist at the Fresno Bee, right before I was a sports columnist at the Fresno Bee. There was only one columnist, so it was Woj, then it was me, then it was John Branch, who's a friend of the show. He's now at the New York Times. So we've got to get to that as well. New York Times disbanding its sports desk and turn, handing over the keys to the athletic. Kind of a sad day in the sports media world as well last week. But uh, as uh, Wojnarowski used to say to me, you know, uh, he, uh, we were talk, we'd always talk about the job. And, and I think it's true, and I think about this all the time. As a radio show host, host of this show for 15 hours a week, and then writing my column at johnconzano.com, like, you don't turn off the fact that you're a sports radio show host. You don't flip a switch and, and not be a sports columnist as far as your mindset is concerned. And what I mean by that is you are always thinking about the next column, the next radio show the material, the content, it consumes you in a way that is a little abnormal. It's not like a normal, I think, a normal job. Like I envy sometimes people who work in an industry where they build something. Like my friend Rick who owns the wall. 
buythewall.com. Rick does a fantastic job. He owns this company. His kids work there. He's got great employees. You know what they do? They pour driveways. They build retaining walls. Uh, they put in, uh, you know, you need a sidewalk or a path put into your backyard. You need an outdoor patio or you're pouring the foundation for a kitchen. They can do all that for you, okay? They do these great projects. And I've talked to him about this. I said, I really envy what you do, Rick, because at the end of your workday, you look over your shoulder as you're leaving a job site, and, you know, there's a retaining wall there. There's a driveway there. Like, you've done something, and it's there, and you can drive back by it. I even talked to his crew about this because they were putting in this, this uh, retaining wall for us. I said, Don't, do you drive by your, your sites and, and kind of look and go, hey, I did that like eight years ago, and it's still there. Like, there's a measure of pride that you have in that. And you get that in those professions in the same way that maybe in the, in the sports world an NBA player or an NFL player or a Major League Baseball player can look at the back of their trading card and go, hey, in 1998... I hit 312 with 23 home runs, and I drove in 88 runs, and that was a pretty good year. And and that stands the, the, the test of history, like it happened. It's recorded somewhere. And I suppose my columns live in an archive, and I suppose the podcast of this radio show lives, and it's evergreen. But at the end of a workday, I am often left thinking about not today's show or today's column, but what comes next. What am I doing tomorrow? What's on tomorrow's show? What's in the next segment? What's in the next hour? And so as I'm meandering around New York City with the kids, i got to be honest with you. I'm looking. My eyes are open. I'm noticing sports fans. I'm paying attention on social media and on the television across the room as to what's going on in sports. Because I'm thinking about, you know, what would I think about that? What do I think about Pat Fitzgerald and Northwestern University? And Michael Schill, the former president at Oregon, embroiled in all of that. You know, he comes out, he slaps Fitzgerald with a two-week punishment for all the hazing that had apparently gone on at Northwestern, and then Schill reconsiders and then reconvenes and then comes back out and says, you know, after further deliberation, I'm actually going to fire the guy. It wasn't enough what I did, and I, you know, and he ends up, uh, you know, firing him. And now Schill, has, at this point, as far as I know, has not come forth and made a comment about it. And I'm getting contacted by reporters at ESPN and other places who are saying, hey, you know, when he was at Oregon, did he talk to you? And I'm like, yeah, he talked. He came on this radio show all the time. Listeners of the show know that Michael Schill has been on this show, and I have communicated with him since he's gone to Northwestern. So if he's not talking to media, he's not talking to media because he intentionally does not want to make a comment. Like, we know that he can get out and he can get in front of things. We've seen him do it. He was on this show at the beginning of the pandemic. But I've got comments and I've got thoughts about that. I've got thoughts about what the Blazers are doing. It's Joe Cronin and the Blazers got in this painted into this uncomfortable corner of NBA hell with Damian Lillard and his agent Aaron Goodwin essentially saying, you know, it's a trade request. Think it's interesting semantics. Is it a request? Is it a demand? What's the difference if you're under contract and you have no no trade clause in your contract? Can you really make a demand? Uh, it's going to be an interesting standoff between the Blazers, Damian Lillard, Aaron Goodwin, and all these reports we now see with people saying, oh, Miami and Portland and Portland and Miami and draft picks. And we're all looking at all this stuff, and I, I think the temperature in the room has very much changed. And I was watching this from New York where people, by the way, are tuned into this. Like, the you know, the average New Yorker who follows the NBA is tuned into the saga of Damian Lillard, is tuned into the saga of the Portland Trailblazers, and does know that a trustee is is running the organization. I find that interesting. 
Because a lot of times, as I said, when you are in that part of the country and you look across the country, you know, you ask people in uh, the eastern part of the country, in the eastern time zone, hey, do you, uh, do you root for the Ducks or the Beavers? And they don't know Oregon from Oregon State. Like, they'll go, the Oregon State Ducks or the Oregon Beavers? Like, you've seen that mistake made. I've seen that mistake made. But people are very much tuned into what's going on with the Trailblazers. And I think that says a lot about the NBA and the impact of the NBA as much as anything. Um, I do think the Pac-12 saga is lost a little bit. And I wrote about this, uh, you know, yesterday as I woke up in New York City yesterday morning. I'm on the 20th floor of this hotel. And every morning I'm, uh, I, I jar my, I'm jarred awake by the sound of sirens, sounds of traffic. Now, I enjoy the sound of a city. But I've got to be honest with you. This morning when I woke up in the, the great state of Oregon and I heard uh, silence and then birds chirping as I went outside, I said, man, I don't miss the sound of the concrete and the sound of the taxis and the Ubers laying on their horn and traffic and people and, you know, just sort of the abrasiveness of, uh, from a city that came back from the pandemic and came back hard, so to speak. But I, um, I'm left kind of thinking about the woes of the Pac-12. And I heard from a lot of Duck fans, a lot of Beaver fans, a lot of Pac-12 fans who were in the eastern part of the country after writing that column yesterday who said to me, hey, we feel very much alone, very isolated on that part of the country because they can't get Pac-12 games. They can't find games on TV that you know are showing up at a reasonable hour. Of course, the Pac-12 doesn't want to end up head-to-head with the Big Ten or the SEC. That makes no sense. You don't want to play even the ACC. You don't even want to go head-to-head with those games unless you're Oregon, unless you're Washington, unless maybe you're Utah in a really good year. You don't want to end up on a routine basis in the Pac-12 playing head-to-head against Michigan and whoever they're playing or Ohio State and whoever they're playing or Clemson and whoever they're playing or Georgia or Alabama and whoever those schools are playing. You're going to lose those battles uh, for attention and for the TV set. But the fact of the matter is, you know, it struck me being on the eastern part of the country that, you know, a lot of times by about noon – 1.30 Eastern Time, 2.30, 3 o'clock Eastern Time, you know, they start to do what we all do at those times. They start to pivot to the next day and the next thing. And by the time we get to 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time, forget about it. The competition is no longer about another football game. The competition is about your drooping eyelids and your pillow. And we've seen that, right? We have anecdotal evidence where you talk about viewership of Pac-12 games and the Pac-12 after dark. Yes, it works for Washington State and Oregon State. It works being on in that late time zone. Doesn't really work for Oregon. Doesn't work for Washington. Doesn't work for Utah and some others who get stuck there at least once a year because that's just the fact of the matter and the way that the Pac-12 schedule sort of unfolds and, and the rules that the conference has when it comes to the Pac-12 and games that are scheduled on the Pac-12 networks. So I'm kind of wondering if what we're going to see in this next Pac-12 meteorites deal, and I'm framing this with New York City, I'm kind of wondering if we're going to see the Pac-12 choose a streaming partner, a larger presence on a streaming partner, and maybe it dovetails with what Bob Iger, the president of Disney, said this morning in his interview, did a big interview on uh, uh, CNBC 
where he talked about, you know, the possibility of ESPN taking on an equity partner. And, you know, while they are laying off 7,000 people in the Disney family between ABC, ESPN, and Disney, and while they are cutting $3 billion, billion with a B, dollars of content from places like Disney and ABC and ESPN+, Plus, they are not cutting live sports programming at all. It really makes me think that the delay that we're watching with the Pac-12's media rights negotiation may be... Maybe uh, you know. Maybe it's lined up a little bit with the uh, the fact that I- Disney and ESPN are a mess right now. And so I reached out to a member of the Pac-12 CEO group, of course, right before the show, and I said, "Hey, am I making too much of this? Like, is it possible that your delay is tied to the fact that Disney and ESPN and the landscape, the excuse me, the landscape of that family and the industry itself has shifted?" in a way that has uh, really changed the the calculus in the industry. And the answer came back, no, you're not making too much of that. That's exactly why we're delayed. And then I said, well, is this good or bad, or how are you reading this from inside the walls, like the inner sanctum of the Pac-12 conference? You know, how what what is really going on behind the scenes, and how do we, what are we to make of all of this? And the answer came back that essentially... This was a this was a good thing for the conference in the end, although, admittedly, they said it is going to uh, cause a delay when it comes to, uh, you know, the Pac-12 conference trying to uh, get this deal done, and and I think that's where we find ourselves today. That in the end, this will be a good thing, and it feels to me more and more like the Pac-12 could have a very heavy streaming presence and may be the first to either go all in. Or go mostly in with a small linear TV package. Maybe they remain on ESPN as long as ESPN is ESPN. And uh, it's possible that Apple could become a equity partner with ESPN. As Bob Iger said today that, you know, they're exploring a partnership. And guess what? Apple, Amazon, Google, those are your partners when it comes to your potential streaming partners as it pertains to the Pac-12 conference. All of this, of course... Framed by the idea that, do you want to see your football games at 7.30, 7 o'clock Pacific time? What's the right time to kick off a football game? You tell me. Like, you know, I'm really curious about that. Like, from your standpoint, what is the ideal time to kick off a college football game? Because I've talked to a lot of fans in the last year or two who will say to me, hey, I've given up my tickets. We can't do this anymore. I don't want to be on I-5 at 1 o'clock in the morning trying to get home from an Oregon game or an Oregon State game. Uh, I can't do it anymore. Uh, I don't like driving at night. Hey, I can't get anybody to go with me to the game. It's too late. Hey, we have kids. That's just too much to ask from kids on a busy weekend. Like, I hear those things over and over and over again, and I relate to it, and I understand it, because guess what? Whatever time you're getting home from the game, I'm probably getting home from the game just a little later, after uh, you know, interviewing somebody, writing a column from the stadium, you know, making my way home, I'm behind you. I don't really catch up to you uh, as it pertains to uh, you know, watching those games uh, unfold and whatnot. Uh, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about all this stuff. We'll talk about Damian Lillard, but I want to start today's show by asking you that question. What's the right time to kick off a college football game in your mind? 
Now, keep in mind, you don't want to go head-to-head with the SEC games. You don't want to go head-to-head with the ACC games. You don't want to go head-to-head with uh, anybody else in, you know, that is going to kill you like on a regular basis. So get rid of like a 10 a.m. kickoff. Get rid of a noon kickoff. I think you're running up against you know, still too much out there. I think you're probably kicking off somewhere around 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock Eastern. Does that work for you? Does it work for the western part of the country? Does it keep you relevant on the eastern part of the country? Does it keep you away from the big matchups that are in the Big Ten and the SEC that you want to steer out of? You tell me at 503-417-7575. Judah Newby is in studio. He's at Air Traffic Control. How you doing, man? John, it's great to have you back, man. It's great to have you back, and uh, yeah, I've been been good, been good. College football right around the corner. Obviously, a Dame stuff still floating in the air, but still plenty of plenty to talk about. I feel like I I don't I don't have no concept of what I have missed. I almost feel <laughs> like when I'm out, I should uh, I should have like somebody going, "Hey, here's everything that you've missed. We're catching you up to speed." Like you know, as you pertain to like the last week or so of what has gone on in the world of sports. Am I missing something? Damian Lillard, Pac-12, uh, all-star game. Can we get these guys back in their respective uniforms like the good old days? Oh, I, I don't love like that these... take. Yeah. Love that take because I totally agree with you. Now, in this week, people generally hold this week, the, the MLB all-star week, as like the quote-unquote slowest week of uh, of sports talk. But I would say a couple of things. One, uh, Joe Cronin's comments on Monday. So I think that was like maybe the one of the first days you were out. He said uh, it could take months uh, for the Damian Lillard trade to happen, which seemed like a very intentional phrase to everybody mm. that was, you know, a prospective suitor, including the Miami Heat. He's like in no rush to make this deal happen. So that was in Vegas. Um, Jeremy Grant, Matisse Tybel are back. Those are obviously, uh, you know, uh, sub- window dressing. <laughs> just window dressing to the rest yeah. of it. The Pat Fitzgerald stuff's interesting because of the Michael Schill involvement, in my opinion. Um, obviously, the way we know uh, President Schill and. He's kind of at the center of how that decision came and the timing of it and everything. So I'd be curious your thoughts there. Um, a little bit of Shohei Otani buzz just because he's a free agent at the end of the year and the Mariners might be involved for him. But other than that, you know, I think Brett Yormark placed Big 12 Media Day at a good spot for his conference because they're getting a lot of buzz uh, this week in Dallas. And I know uh, just trying to figure out if George is going to get a deal done before next Friday is yeah. where I'm at. Yeah, I'm interested in that too. I'm interested in hearing too what uh, what the your take of your Mark's appearance as part of Media Day was. But let's start with Lillard and Cronin. Uh, Cronin coming out and speaking from Vegas, super intentional, right? There's nothing accidental that's happening when when Cronin's making a public comment like that. So let's talk about um, what the Blazers are trying to accomplish there. Like obviously, this is a negotiation. They know that Lillard won't retire, so he's under contract. I talked to Bob Witsit, the former uh, Blazers president and GM, just last week about this. You know, He told me that Clyde Drexler, in the run-up to the, I believe it was the 94-95 uh, season when Drexler got traded, if I'm remembering correctly. can't remember if it was that. Yeah, because that was, uh, uh, and, and Clyde Drexler wanted to be traded. You know, he did, his original team that he wanted to go to wasn't the Houston Rockets. Witsit told me that Drexler asked if he could go to the 76ers. And the Sixers were bad at the time, but the prevailing thought was that Clyde could get a massive contract from the 76ers and they would view him as a tentpole player that they were going to build around. 
And uh, Witsit was not happy that Drexler went public saying he wanted to be traded, much like Camp Lillard going public. It doesn't help you get him traded when, when players do that. But in the end, um, you know, he told Clyde, we're not going to trade you. You know, we don't like the offers because the offers that were coming in, much like the offers the Blazers are probably fielding right now, were fire, fire sale offers. You know, 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, not enough. All this stuff, all these trades I've seen, like, proposed from people on social media, you know, Miami's going to give two firsts and this. Those are bad draft picks. If the Heat have Damian Lillard, those are bad draft picks. You don't want those picks. So I'm I'm inclined to think that, you know, Bob Witsit did this with Clyde Drexler. He convinced him, come back, play a half a season. I'll continue to tra- try to trade you. Houston had made a better offer, and it was what you know was an offer that Witsit could accept. But Witsit told me in the end, had Clyde never gone public, it really would have helped him. You know, hey, it should have just been a private conversation. Tell me that you want to be traded. I'll do my best to trade you. It'll look like I'm being proactive. I'll get real offers. Um, I think there's you know definitely a standoff here between Lillard and and Aaron Goodwin and Joe Cronin and the Blazers, and I'm really leaning now towards the idea that we could see Damian Lillard start the season in Portland. Would would that be palatable for Blazer fans? How would Blazer fans react to Lillard in uniform on opening night? That's such a great question because I, I wonder the same thing. And, you know, depending on, you know, the opinions that are out there, I agree with you. I think this thing could take a while. It could last till training camp. It could last to the preseason potentially. But the thing I keep coming back to is, why did the Blazers, if Lillard is still in Portland, why would the Blazers want Lillard to play? That's my question. It's not like Portland's going to be competing for anything anytime soon. I know they're not full-on tanking already, right. <laughs> but, but at the same time, if that dude gets hurt, trade value just goes down, right? Yeah. Like, what's the but point? But if you're not getting good offers, like, you know, why would, you know, you can't, you know, are you, you can't go forth with that and go, hey, we'll just take 50 cents on the dollar for... Damian Lillard, I think you have to, right. you know, you have to bank on the idea that he's going to be a professional and not threaten to hold out, not, you know, and, and by the way, I asked Witsit, I said, what would you have done back in the day if you went to trade for a player and the agent told you, my guy's not going to report? He said, it wouldn't stop me. I would trade for him anyway. I would convince him to show up. He said, we did that in Portland. Like you had guys that didn't want to come to Portland. He convinced them to get in uniform. Scotty Pippen, one of them. Pippen didn't want to be traded to Portland. You know, he he wanted to go to the Los Angeles Lakers. And Bob Witsit got on the phone with him and said, look, we're going to build around you. You're going to win a championship without Michael Jordan, without Phil Jackson. You'll get your seventh ring. They'll name a street after you. All of a sudden, it was like, you know, Larsa Pippen, who wanted no part of Portland. She wanted to be in L.A. too, obviously. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, here come the Pippins moving in. You know, like, it. that's what you do if you're a GM. That's part of the job. All right, leave it here. You got the bald face truth. We've got a lot to catch up on today. What's on your mind as it pertains to Damian Lillard, the Trailblazers, uh, the ideal time to kick off a football game? What else? What did I miss? I've got a lot to say. I want to hear what you have to say about it as well. 503 417 7575. What's the ideal time to kick off a college football game? Pac 12 might have to ask itself that question if it really does pivot hardcore into a streaming service. And uh, and become a mostly streaming media entity. Will it be bold enough to be first to market that way? Uh, if ESPN is going there anyway, Bob Iger, the president of Disney, saying today that not only would ESPN 
become an all-streaming platform at some point. He said he knew when that was going to happen. I wonder if he's talking about the summer of 2024, as the Pac-12 then would uh, be in position with the Pac-12 networks and some of its content, uh, football content, men's basketball content in particular, to be uh, suitable there. Would it change kickoff times? And if that's what's going to happen, will the Pac-12 give more control of its kickoff times to its individual members? So you tell me what time you want them to kick off these games. Let's go out to the phone lines. Chris calling in from Westland. Chris, what's on your mind, my friend? Hey, John, welcome back. Um, yeah, when you said that, I'm just, like, getting excited for football season. I live in Westland. Four o'clock would be the great time because, um, you know, a couple of years ago they were doing those 7 o'clock, 7.30, and wouldn't get home until, you know, 1 or 2 in the morning. So 4 o'clock is your time to get down there and tailgate, and then uh, that would be a perfect storm. <laughs> Yeah, would it would that bring you? Do you like? Do you have a problem when there's a seven thirty kickoff, seven o'clock kickoff with your tickets? Do you have a problem with the competition coming from your living room? Uh, it's just is you know I go down because I'm a full doc fan and I'm, I'm going to go down there, but it's just driving back. You know, it, it's just it, it it takes a lot out. I mean, one year I think we had three games that were seven or seven thirty, and so um, you know the next day you're just out of it. But um, yeah, I think. Four o'clock would be awesome, and you know they do five o'clock or six o'clock. But yeah, it's, uh, a little earlier is always better. I remember I went that one game. I think they had eleven o'clock a.m. kickoff one time. I was way too yeah. early. Yeah, look, I don't want them to kick off too early. I don't like the early, like the ten a.m. kickoffs that Larry Scott wanted to do. That whole, uh, you know, that brunch with Larry. You know uh, that whole uh, that whole thing he was doing early morning stuff. He was exploring new windows, all that stuff. I don't want him to do that. But I also I don't like the seven o'clock. I don't like the seven thirty. I don't think that's that's family friendly. I'm a family friendly person. Um, I want to see a little bit of daylight with my college football. Uh, let's continue this conversation. Jason Eugene, listening on Fox Sports. Eugene, Jason, what time are we kicking off? Uh, I like the 4 o'clock kickoff as well. Sometime in the afternoon, having some time to get down there. Uh, the 7 o'clock, yeah, it's way too late. Um, been going to games. I've been living in Eugene for the last eight years and going to games, and they get, keep getting pushed later and later. I just don't understand why it's treated so much different on the collegiate level than it is, like, in professional. You know, because there's clearly games that are airing, same time, same channel, just whatever region it is is whatever game you're getting. I understand there's way more college teams, way more college games happening on Saturdays, but still the, the fan bases are so ingrained. You know, if, if, if Bama's kicking off the same time as Oregon, I'm going to watch Oregon, and Bama's going to watch Bama. Like, I, I just don't see that many eyeballs getting stolen. Yeah, and I think the TV networks, thanks for the call, the TV networks, I think the way that they view it is they're not just thinking about ratings. They're not just thinking about people in the Eugene market watching the game. They are thinking about, you know, drawing a big number when they have a brand and a big game on a national platform that they can air uh, across the country. But I am with the caller because, uh, you know, look, I think about the teams that I care about. If there is a great game that is on, you know, if Georgia's playing Alabama, I might watch that anyway if that game's on. I don't want the Pac-12 necessarily to go head-to-head with those games, but... If you're asking me what time we kick off the football game, you know, I would ideally say the earliest you kick off a Pac-12 game would be uh, 1 o'clock, maybe 2 o'clock. And the latest you kick off a football game ever 
would be maybe 5.30. I don't want to see games being kicked off at 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock Mountain Time. I don't like that. It doesn't work. I get it. Like I had one of the athletic directors for one of the Pac-12 schools this morning reach out to me because I wrote yesterday that the Pac-12 really should be thinking about those kickoff times. And they said, well, maybe a school like Washington State would disagree with you. Like because Washington State is getting an opportunity to um, potentially kick off a game that people on the East Coast could watch. But I'm like, but who's who on the East Coast is watching Pac-12 after dark unless, it's a caveat, they're a degenerate gambler who's way into the game. Like, let's be honest, if you're not a Washington State fan, the game's kicking off at 7.30. If you're not a Washington, diehard Washington State fan, you're probably not watching the game. If you're not a Pac-12 fan watching the opponent, you're probably not watching the game. Let's go to Mike in Seattle. Mike, uh, we're on topic here. Uh, what time are we yeah. kicking off the game? Well, John, great question. And um, uh, I was thinking as you were saying that, that, well, I think 3.30 is the best time you know, for Corvallis and Eugene. Those are my two places. Also over in Poland where I go for games. Um, but, and in the streaming model, you know, when it's just a click on an icon on the TV, it doesn't matter then what time it starts. Because even if it's, um, even if you're a little late to the party, you know, you can hit play. Just like you and your movie theater experience, you know, with mm-hmm. your pop cup. You know, if you get there late and the movie started, you know, you don't have a chance to hit rewind. So I think this streaming model is going to be great for the consumer. I I don't know if they can sell as many um, ads at the high price because the only people watching are the ones interested in the game. But I was thinking, how about if you move some college football to the spring? Yeah, except, you know, I think what we're seeing is – I don't know. I, I doesn't that cause you a problem though when you're competing for you know uh, you know in the spring with spring sports and you get everybody off the calendar? It feels a little XFL-ish to me. I I think college look college athletics is doing fine. The problem becomes when you are competing it within the ranks of collegiate sports. You're the Big Ten's competing with the SEC, the Pac-12's competing with the Big Twelve. The ACC is competing with the other four Power Four, five conferences. Everybody's competing over the same piece of uh, content, and they're cannibalizing each other, and they're in competition with each other. And, oh, by the way, here comes the NFL creeping earlier. If all of college football wants to move a little earlier, fine. But I don't think you could move everything to the spring for a couple of reasons. One being you get off calendar. Two being I don't think you would get consensus among the uh, college football programs about when you're playing those games. And three, how about this? How about players who want to play in the NFL? What are they doing if they're playing in the spring and the NFL is going, hey, wait a minute, we need you available you know, on short notice in the summer, the graduating players? I don't know. Are you going to see guys that just opt out of their senior year? I don't like it. Judah, do you like moving college football to the spring? No, I don't. It's College football is a, a full-time sport. <laughs> Inventory is not that much of a challenge for you guys. with my emotions now. I know. Come on. What is this? Uh, but I, I totally agree with you. I don't mind thinking outside the box with this stuff, but... Uh, yeah, not the springtime. I will echo the 4 o'clock sentiment, uh, and to give specific examples, Oregon-Washington, 4 o'clock last year, just felt like a big game on a big network and great atmosphere. I loved it. Texas Tech and Oregon, week two this year, 4 o'clock, Fox. Beautiful. I love that right time slot. I think that works for games at the Pac-12 footprint, and I think it works for big non-conference games elsewhere as well. So uh, sign me up for the 4 o'clock slot.
All right. Uh, I like the 4 o'clock. What's the latest, the absolute latest you should kick off a game? Give me the window because I'm okay with an old-fashioned, whoa, Nelly, uh, kicking off at noon with Keith Jackson game back in the old <laughs> days. I'm still okay with that. I can remember those days. And, but So I'll say noon is the earliest I want to see the Pac-12 tee the ball up, and I'll say 5.30 is the latest because that's 8.30 Eastern. I'm trying to be mindful of the people on the East Coast who want to see the games. That's a, that's a tough one. I think you, <laughs> the East Coast is gone if you uh, kick it off at 10 Eastern or later. I think you know, I, and maybe it's different on the weekend, not a school night, et cetera. But yeah, I, I would agree with you if you're if you're actually incorporating East Coast viewership. Which, by the way, I was reading a an old Oregon football history book uh, at the library the other day. Don't ask me how I I got hmm. to that point, but. In it, it said that back, uh, you know, in the late 90s, maybe it was the early 2000s, Oregon actually had a deal to air its games on a handful of East Coast cable networks Hmm. in East Coast markets specifically. And, like, these were, like, you know, very specific, um, almost a la carte deals to air Oregon football out on the East Coast. I I know probably some longtime Duck fans are familiar with that, but whenever you talk about airing Pac-12 football getting an East Coast exposure – like this has been something that's been on the minds of some decision makers uh, out west for for decades now. It's just taken you know different forms over the years, and certainly in the advent of cable and streaming, it looks a lot different these days. But it's just interesting to me that it's been a topic on a lot of people's minds for quite some time. Yeah, it's interesting to to see that dynamic play out as well. And look, I do, here's what I think is going to happen. And I've been talking a little bit today with sources inside the Pac-12. A little bit today with Bob Thompson, our friend, the former Fox Sports Network president. He still thinks there's going to be a linear presence in the Pac-12 deal of some kind. But here's I'm trying to piece this together, and, I, and I'm just going to kind of piece it together. I'll say what's not being said. There's some kind of delay. I'm being told it involves the ESPN Disney drama. Maybe that they're just waiting for the smoke to clear to announce it. Maybe that something else is happening. But Iger's comments today were interesting. He said for the first time that he was open to a private equity investor buying ESPN either outright or buying ESPN uh, as an equity partner. Now, they had explored Comcast buying ESPN months and months ago, but um, that didn't kind of come together. Um, I also think that... You are looking at the potential that Apple, Amazon, or Google end up buying ESPN and that it becomes an all-streaming platform and it becomes the all-sports offering that ESPN has always been, but part of the Apple or Amazon or Google family. And But, you know, again, would that be 100% that it was a, a streaming platform in, in 2024 when the deal starts? Or would it be, hey, no, you're going to get one game a week on ESPN when the deal starts, but everything else will start on Apple. And then when uh, ESPN decides to go all streaming, Apple will take it over. I don't know. But I do know that the Pac-12 appears, at least internally, happy with the numbers they're seeing. They say, you know, I'm told they being a member of the Pac-12 CEO group, I don't want to out my source here, but I'm talking to somebody who's in the room who said to me today that in the end they're going to be there this is going to work out for the conference that they're really going to be happy where they end up but there is a delay that has been caused by the world of 
Disney, ESPN, and the shift of that streaming world landscape. There's something going on that's bigger than you know the rest of us could probably comprehend. But I believe that the Pac-12 is going to be involved in this and is probably sitting in an advantageous position, at least from the standpoint of wanting to potentially be first to be uh, in the market. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Something like 77, 78% of the population of the country is uh, located in the eastern time zone. It is. Big cities, big markets, a lot of people. Um, they got a three-hour head start on us every day. You know, every day they look over at us and they go, well, they're, they're still sleeping. Think about that. Think about the the uh, the concept of that. If we were competing against the eastern time zone as the Pacific time zone, we would huddle up and we'd go, okay, listen, we got to do a better job of getting out of bed. We're three hours behind them every day. Now, I have a friend and a neighbor who is an analyst on Wall Street, okay? He's up at O-Dark 30 because he's getting ahead of, you know, what's happening on the East Coast. And if you work for a company that has headquarters in the Eastern time zone, you know what the hell I'm talking about. There's an advantage in that, you know, come 2 o'clock, you're probably knocking off. But I, I'm going to guess a lot of you who are working for companies in the Eastern part of the country are making phone calls in the morning. I was sitting in New York, and I was waiting for the Pac-12 uh, source that I needed to talk to. To uh, I was waiting for it to be 8 o'clock on the uh, 8 a.m. On, on the western part of the uh, country, and I was sitting there going, by the time I get this person on the phone, and by the time I you know, write what I need to write, it's going to be 11.30 Eastern time at least, maybe noon. By then, the uh, Eastern time zone is going to be like, eh, it doesn't matter. We're moving on. Like, think about that, Judah. If we're in competition and I'm getting up three hours earlier than you every day, I'm winning. I also feel like people on the East Coast, they wake up earlier, too. Like, sometimes there are some days, John, I'll admit, sometimes I'm getting up, a lot, you know, around 8 or so, you know, if, right. I, if I'm a little tired. I don't feel like East Coast people get up at 8. It's like, they're up, they're, they're going to school at, like, 7 in the morning. Maybe that's just a perception thing on my part, but I, they're up, uh, you know, before us because of the time difference, and I also think that they... Even in their respective time zone, they wake up earlier, too. They're always moving out there. It's a, a lot of energy out on the East Coast, New York in particular. Yeah, they take themselves very seriously. Yeah, a little too seriously. Yeah. Anybody's driven in the city. I drove. Oh. We, we rented a car one day. I was kind of, we were driving out of the city, and, you know, I was, I told my daughter, I said, I'm waiting because I want to honk at somebody, because like, everybody's <laughs> honking at somebody, so I. I waited for the first person to slow down in front of me and kind of laid on the horn a little bit, you know. What'd your uh, What'd your daughters think of New York City? I think they were blown away at the scale of it, you know. And the older daughter and I did a daddy-daughter trip before the pandemic where we went and saw a Broadway show and whatever. But I think it was the simple scale of things and seeing Times Square and climbing to the observation deck of, of the Empire State Building and kind of looking around and going, this is not the tallest building in the city and going to the 9-11 museum and seeing the memorial and seeing the museum and mm -hmm. them asking a lot of questions about what happened and you know you think about it like you know i don't know how appropriate or not appropriate it was we didn't really think about it we took the uh, the kids to the 9-11 memorial in the museum and we're going in and we are um you know getting questions from the seven-year-old and the nine-year-old 
who are asking, you know, why did someone fly a, a commercial airplane into the side of the World Trade Center? And why would they do that? And, do, you know, what did, why, why were they so mad at America? Like, I, there was things we hadn't thought about. Like, maybe we're bad parents. And so as we're walking into the building, we're going, well, bad people did this, and they were mad at America, and... And then Anna was like, I don't know, like, or do we make do we make a mistake here? Like, and I was like, no, I think it's important. I think it's important for them to know it and understand it, and you know, and know that why we when we go to an airport, why when we go through TSA, why we're going through TSA, like, you know, there was some. I think there was some connection that was made on the trip. But I think the girls in general, they loved it. Um, you know those pedicabs, those guys, those crazy guys who will drive, and you can get like three people in a cab, you know, and they'll drive you through the yeah. city, and they'll drive all around. We were in Times Square, and the girls really wanted to go on one of those pedicabs. For whatever reason, that became like the thing that three daughters were like, oh, can we do it? Can we do it? So I walked up to this guy, and I said, listen, I'm going to put these three kids in here. Uh, he had music and flashing lights on his cab. It was at night, and I said, all right, can you just give him a ride like around the block, real safe, you know, don't want you to go too far. <laughs> Way, way overcharged me tourist rates for it, probably. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll have him back in a minute. He was this Greek guy. So he takes off with him. And as he's taking off down the street with him, I, I, there was part of me that was like, Are there, am I ever going to see him again? <laughs> and and like, like, I hadn't thought it through. You know, like, you know, he, yeah. like when he's going around the corner with him, they're being trafficked somewhere. I don't know. So oh. he goes around the corner, and then I, I said to Anna, I couldn't really relax. And I was like, this is our, this is our, there's our first alone time in New York City. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to relax until they get back. And so I was kind of just w looking down the street, waiting, and then I saw him come around the corner. He's weaving, weaving back and forth. He's giving them the thrill of the New York City ride for them. And they had a blast in that way. They were also exhausted. Like, literally, as we got home last late last night, they were wiped in a way that, like, is like, I, like basically we had to carry them through the airport at the end. So I think they were exhausted. They saw it. It was warm. It was muggy. We got to see some family where we were there, but which was nice. But um, I think it was a good trip. But I also think I'm glad to be home. And you know how that goes. When, oh, yeah. when, every time you go somewhere, you're just glad to get back home. And I don't think people there realize how great it is in this part of the country, too, the Pacific yeah. Northwest. A lot of people asking me, you know, what what's, what's it about or what's it like there? Or, what's the cost of living? And I was like... And they go, well, is it, isn't it really expensive? I said, compared to New York? Like, no, <laughs> not compared to New York expensive. Yeah. But, you know, it is. Like, relative to other parts of the country, sure it is. This brings us to our big splash. Uh, it's got a college football angle. Uh, let's uh, have at it. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Well, let's start with Victoria Bowles, who survived that fatal car wreck that killed a University of Georgia football player in January. She's filed a lawsuit against the University of Georgia and Eagles rookie Jalen Carter. Now, police are accusing Carter of racing the SUV driven by a recruiting staffer when it wrecked. Lawsuit was filed uh, Wednesday, who uh, was formerly a recruiting analyst for the university. She's accusing the Georgia... Uh, athletic Department of Negligence, um, and she's contradicting public state Kirby Smart and other officials who claimed that the recruiting staffer Chandler LaCroix should not have been driving the leased SUV when it left the road and struck 
trees and utility poles. Um, this is going to be interesting to see it play out. Mark Schlebach of ESPN had the story today. But the lawsuit also alleges that the athletic department was negligent in allowing the uh, LaCroix to drive the SUV during her duties. Um, they were aware that LaCroix had four speeding tickets, including two super speeder violations under Georgia law. And a lawsuit says that the SUV was traveling 104 miles an hour when it crashed and it had been driving uh, in a race against the SUV driven by Jalen Carter. Uh, blood alcohol level of LaCroix was 0.197. That's two and a half times the legal limit in Georgia. It'll be interesting to see the settlement there. It will be a settlement. Georgia's not going to want Kirby Smart deposed. They're not going to want to drag this out, but uh, a uh, unfortunate byproduct of a tragic accident has a lawsuit now attached to it coming up we're going to play punch it audio we'll take a trip around the world of sports in punch it audio i want you here for it uh we'll get caught up on everything i still have some strong thoughts on damian lillard and obviously his agent aaron goodwin why hasn't lillard come out yet to say hey uh you know what i don't want to uh be traded after all like he wants out doesn't he is it a demand? Is it a request? More ahead. Well, we got one hour in the books. We've been talking a lot about the stuff I missed being on vacation. Is that newsworthy? I don't know if it's newsworthy. I don't know if people care. But I have stuff to say. Yes, I have thoughts on Pac-12 Media Day next week. LeBron James announcing he's not retiring today. Brett Yormark, Big 12 commissioner. He sounded like... A guy who's deeply protective of his conference, deeply insecure. Does he sound like a car salesman? Apologies to my car salesman friends. Do the Blazers have to trade Damian Lillard? We're going to talk about all that in this hour of radio. Anna will pop in. We'll do the 5 at 5. We have so much to talk about. But let's start by asking Judah Newby a question. You mind if I pepper you before I get into punch and audio? Oh, of course. Okay, I'm going to pepper you with uh, a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, um, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked a little bit about MLB to PDX and the possibility of the city of Portland knocking on wood here. I'm looking for wood in the studio. There it is. Uh, the city of Portland getting its act together and building a ballpark or at least paving the way literally paving the way for a ballpark at the Lloyd Center Mall or some other property. Maybe it's Red Tail Golf Course, which is annexed by the city of Portland years and years ago. But I was watching Tuesday night's Major League Baseball All-Star Game, and I was watching in particular the post-game show on the field at T-Mobile uh, Park. And it was A-Rod, it was Derek Jeter, it was David Ortiz, and they were kind of doing the roundtable thing that they do in the wake of the game. And they kept referring to the Pacific Northwest. They weren't seeing Seattle. thought it was interesting. Like, first time it happened, I didn't think anything of it. Second, third time, Anna, who happened to be eavesdropping in the room, said, why do they keep saying Pacific Northwest? Like, that feels really oddly intentional. And I got to thinking about it. It's Fox it's almost like A-Rod was re reading off a script. He was talking about the Pacific Northwest, the Pacific Northwest. And I kind of started to wonder, A, 
were they trying to capture a larger percentage of the market than maybe just Seattle? Were they trying to appeal to Portland? Were they trying to appeal to, you know, uh, Spokane? Were they trying to appeal to Vancouver, B.C.? Uh, whatever you would include uh, liberally in the Pacific Northwest? Or was Major League Baseball trying to open the door to the idea of, hey, we need a bigger presence in the Pacific Northwest. How about MLB to PDX? That would work. Judah, did you think at all on Tuesday as you're watching the All-Star Game about the possibility of an All-Star Game maybe being held someday in Portland or MLB to PDX at all? Tuesday was such a nice day here that, yeah, I was absolutely thinking about that. And then with Adley doing his thing at the at the Derby and playing in the, uh, in the All-Star Game itself, you know, we had that flair. And whenever they said Pacific Northwest, that's what I thought it was at first, was just like, hey, you know, Adley's here. We know he's not from Seattle, but he's from Oregon. Let's just loop mm. them in. But I actually think that you're on to something because I did. I, Joe Davis, the play-by-play guy, and uh, and Smoltz, they referred to it as the Pacific Northwest. You're right. The guys on the, on the set did as well. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't know what the incentive for them to do that is. You know, Seattle, everyone knows Seattle's a baseball market, but – to be as deliberate in referring to the region, I'm starting to think that you're onto something there, and maybe maybe it was part of their talking points. And if it was, you know, it's cool to have that, you know, at least on the forefront of of Rob Manfred's uh, mind. The only thing that <laughs> detracted it a little bit for me was uh, Rob Manfred conducted the MLB Ore- draft. Oregoni, Oregoni, exactly. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. it was so rough. There, there is this Jesuit kid, Noble Meyer, goes tenth overall to Miami. And uh, good old Rob says uh, he's from Jesuit High School in Oregon. And I was like, oh, Manfred, that, that doesn't sound good for MLB to PDX if he doesn't know how to it say It doesn't, Oregon. but he also <laughs> I, he also mispronounced Mission Viejo as well. <laughs> he had a couple of other ones. So I don't want to I want to read too much into it. That's I only want to read into the things that fit my narrative. <laughs> so I'm going to read into the fact that it appeared like it may just be as simple as Smoltz in the broadcast in their production meeting, they said, listen, you got Adley Rutschman. Seattle's market, we're going to get him because the game's in Seattle. We really need to make this a celebration of the Pacific Northwest so we can get everybody in the Pacific Northwest on board with watching this game and keep them engaged, mm-hmm. make them feel like they're part of it. It could be as simple as that. It could be that MLB said, hey, guys, we really need you to push the narrative of this being uh, the region. Uh, and because we want to add a team in the region. Mm-hmm. Could you indulge me on where the latest we stand with the MLB to PDX stuff in terms of a couple of things? One, you know, you broke the news that Red Tail Golf Center could be in play. What do you think about that? It's controversial. It It's interesting to me. I, I originally thought, well, that's Beaverton. And then as I did research on it, I went, oh, Beaverton annexed that to Portland. And it's interesting to see that you would check the box of being inside Portland without really being inside Portland. And so it it helps in that that property is big and it helps that it's owned by the city of Portland. And it would just be a matter of, hey, that's a great area to develop in. It could work. It's an absolute traffic nightmare. People who live in that region will tell you uh, it's, it's a nightmare with traffic already. If you're adding a ballpark there, you're, you're out of your mind. So I think I think if you're going to add a ballpark there, you really need to think about how you're getting people to the stadium. But the same questions and the same problems existed when Pac Bell Park went into downtown San Francisco into a crowded footprint. And people said, how are you going to get people in and out? And they've used you know, tr- public transportation to do it. And people 
you know, will park 30, 20, 30 miles from the stadium and jump on public transportation and mm-hmm. ride it to downtown San Francisco. So it works, but uh, it's gonna it's tricky. But I, I think that's site two. I think it's the backup plan. And it's the backup plan if the city of Portland can't get its act together. There's a little bit of urgency because the charter that would expand the way that the city of Portland makes decisions takes effect, I think it is, next year. Okay? So right now you have what is, you know, these city commissioners, and so you only need, you know, three or four of the city commissioners to be on board with what you're having. They're going to expand to this new city charter, this new way of making decisions in the city in January that I think is problematic. So they have the votes right now, I think, to get something done, and they seem to have Mayor Wheeler, Ted Wheeler, in downtown Portland and his staff on board with needing a win. Like they badly need a win they have the Albina project with Phil Knight behind it. They've got the potential that Phil Knight and Alan Smolinski could buy the Rose Quarter and the Moda Center and buy the Blazers and revitalize that. And so it's the perfect complementary piece, Lloyd Center Mall and the city owning the park across from Lloyd Center. And, hey, it works there. It fits there. It addresses a problem that area is a problem with uh, the mall not attracting, uh, you know, good, uh, uh, you know, clientele, and the businesses are moving out, and there's issues around the mall with crime, and so you've got a potential there for the city to get a big win. So where it stands right now is, you know, I am told that the Portland Diamond Project wants to have either the Lloyd Center property under contract by the end of the year, or the Red Tail Golf property under contract by the end of the year. It's possible they could have options on both, but they want at the end of December 31st to have a property under contract. So here we are on uh, I'm gonna take July 13th. I had to look at my phone. <laughs> July 13th. They know that the ball is rolling. They want it under contract by the end of the year, but it'll be interesting to see if it does become Lloyd Center. If it does, it means that City Hall had its act together. If it doesn't become Lloyd Center, it means they ran into some obstacles they couldn't get past with City Hall, and they pivoted to Red Tail Golf Center. Do you have a thought? Because I know you live relatively. Are you? You know, you've you've made that commute on 217. It's not fun. It, it's not fun. It's not fun. So you broke this news the morning of your golf tournament. So I got to talk about it with Jim Metzl of Sport Oregon, uh, Jim Joyce, the former big league umpire who lives out there as well. So. I think the the traffic component is forefront of everybody's minds. It makes sense. There's a little sentimental value for me. Like one of my favorite restaurants is uh, the Stockpot Broiler. That's right there in Redtail uh, Golf Center. That's where uh, uh, my wife and I had our reception, our wedding reception there. So uh, part of me wonders what happens to uh, our fine establishment there and uh, Murray Miller and everybody that does a great job at Stockpot. But I have a har- I have a really hard time seeing how you put a big league ballpark there. I really do. Um, even though it would be what capacity thirty five thousand or something yeah. like that, like smaller scale, smaller yep. scale. I agree with that. I still it, it gets the feeling that Lloyd Center is you know obviously the the favored position. I'm still figuring out where the whale investor um, you know works into all this, mm-hmm. and if it's Smolinski or if it's somebody else. Like if it's Smolinski, like thank the good lord because that guy would know what the hell he's doing with real estate and and all that. But you know where. <laughs> 
what's the timeline on that? Like with the with the founding charter members needing to make a decision on on whether or not they're going to give up their stakes. Yeah, I'm told that while it has been discussed, they don't have an official offer from the whale investor yet. Like they don't have a written offer of hey. Here's what I'll pay. Like, they're waiting to see that, the charter investors. But my sense now is they now know that there's some reality to this thing. It's got some momentum. Like, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but this is as interesting as I think it's been since in the 20-plus years that I've been here covering, uh, you know, baseball. Maybe since Vera Katz, you know, went on the record back in the day and said, we really want the Expos. This is as interesting as it's been because it's been a lot of talk and a lot of smoke and you know, selling T-shirts and selling hats and we gonna and but now to actually see that there are communications between the Diamond Project and City Hall that look like, hey, they're getting a letter of intent ready. Like they are talking about what language to put into that letter of intent. And it, so it looks to me like I would expect that come the end of this MLB season, when will they finish now? November? Like, so come the end of this season, when Mr. November is being crowned in Major League Baseball, that's when, you know, the Diamond Project will probably be given the okay to be a little more public. Like, Major League Baseball has been really weird about wanting Salt Lake City and Nashville and Portland to just kind of keep things quiet while and not be a distraction while uh, plotting carefully behind the scenes. But this is going to be a race to see who has their act together. Nashville's got its act together. Portland needs to be there as well. Dabrowski, Justin Timberlake, they're part of that Nashville group. They're a big league Utah. You know, we can't let Utah beat us. I don't think Utah gets there. I like Utah. I just don't think it's a baseball town. Portland's a baseball town. It is, in its heart. You look at the history of baseball and the PCL and Portland and the geography of it. And if I'm baseball, I want one in the east and I want one in the west. And if I'm baseball, the team in the West has got to be in the Pacific time zone. So I actually think, like, as much as Salt Lake City having its act together and Salt Lake City, you know, having an ownership group, having some faces to it, I think that I, if I'm Portland, I'm more concerned about Sacramento hmm. with the A's leaving for Vegas. You know, would baseball go, hey, we, we need a team back in that market, or San Jose? And I think beyond that, I think Portland, unless – City politics get in the way. Portland's got a shot at this thing, Judah. There's uh, some social media, too, like Timbers fans saying, we'll, we'll crush it again. We'll crush it again. It's like, why does there have to be this soccer-baseball animosity? Like, we did this already. Yeah, I don't There's, understand that. I mean, come on. I don't understand that. Like, the and, Timbers and shouldn't like, feel yeah. like they're competing against baseball. And I'm going to be fair to the Timbers. Like, you know, look, the Timbers have eighteen or 20,000 rabid fans who love soccer, who are on board with soccer. There might be, there's 18,000, maybe there's 20,000 at the height of the Timbers run. They're going to the MLS Cup and winning it all. But there's not 20,001, okay? So there's room in the market for everybody else to have something that they love too. And I thought it was really interesting when I was in Atlanta for the MLS Cup that the Timbers lost, okay? I'm there covering that thing. I'm inside Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Arthur Blank owns that team. He owns the Falcons. I got to be honest with you. I walked around the stadium and I was like, "These are not Falcons fans. They were. This was not. This was not a crossover between Falcons fans who said, "Oh, we're also going to go to a MLS game." 
No, it was a different audience. It was suburban Atlanta. It was a you know a bunch of millennials. It was uh, you know a bunch of people work for tech companies and autom- automotive companies and are living in the Atlanta area. And it was just a different crowd. And I and I started talking to people and I said, "You're not Falcons fans. No, this is our thing." So I think a big city. If you're a big league city, if you're going to matter. Like, if you're sitting around going, we don't have room for both MLS and MLB, like, get a grip. Like, there's room in this market for MLS to thrive as it has in, and, and to be a thing. And also the Blazers to thrive and also some college teams to thrive. And also there's room for multiple uh, entities to dream about doing something else as well. The market won't lie. We are the biggest market population-wise with only one of the big three major league sports. And I think that's where the soccer fans, the insecurity of some of those soccer fans, not all of them. I know a lot of soccer fans. John Strong, Voice American Soccer, one of my best friends. But I don't think that the insecure soccer fan can wrap their head around the idea that MLB being a thing is is going to be okay. Like, it's not going to cannibalize your sport. It's not going to drive the timbers into hiding. Like, it's, it's great that the... Timbers Army became a lobbyist group, became very powerful. It's great that the Timbers Army supports a lot of charities. Understand that. That's awesome. Love that. It's great that the Timbers Army took a stand, didn't like what ownership was all about and what they were doing, especially when it came to the Thorns mess. Love that the Timbers Army seemed to have a conscience there. But if the Timbers Army is really sitting around going, we cannot allow Major League Baseball. This is what, you know, worry about the Sounders, you know, <laughs> worry about the Galaxy. You know, that those are the enemies, not yeah. somebody dreaming across town about building a ballpark that would bring jobs and revenue and and uh, take a burned out mall and turn it into a place that families and people could go on a on a Tuesday night or a Saturday. Yeah, it's not like we're trying to take over, you know, the the state the Civic Stadium, you know. It's not like the baseball's going to be played there anytime soon, but you're right that this town is a baseball market at its core i think i mean you you watch the uh the battered bastards of baseball documentary that's one of my favorite pieces of of film out there i think that great documentary just love that and it resonates so deeply with me as somebody that's grown up you know in the greater portland area my whole life and have loved baseball my whole life and and played through high school and played at a bunch of fields around here and see the success of the high school programs the college programs the minor league programs and the Ducks and the Beavs' recent success as well, it's like baseball works here. It just does. It absolutely works. And it's got history. I mean, the Pirates and Willie Stargell, they barnstormed out here after they won the World Series in 79. You know, we got Dale Murphy, two-time MVP, is from here. We've got all sorts of of great baseball players that are from this. Johnny Pesky is born in Portland. The great Johnny Pesky with Ted Williams and, and Bobby Doerr, who lived in Oregon for, for so long, as you know, John. Like, there's such a rich baseball history and tradition tied deeply to our state and tied deeply to our market. It would absolutely work here. So I still have that vision. I still have that motivation. And as far as where it competes with other major sports, rising tide, baby. Rising tide's going to lift all boats. And by the way, I think it's the quickest way to improve Portland's reputation, to improve yes. Portland's perception. That's what sports does. Look what freaking PIF and Saudi Arabia are trying to do. Like, they're trying to improve their national perception that's been, you know, I would say <laughs> it's been beat up and for good reason and in so many ways with human rights violations. How are they trying to improve their perception? Sports. 
I mean, for Portland, I think it's the easiest way to improve your standing nationally as well, for whatever value that is, is by improving your national perception in major sports, too. And I think baseball is a great way to do that. Sportify the city. Change the conversation. City Hall needs a win. City Hall doesn't like me. I'll be honest with you. They didn't. They did not want me to break that story. They, that, you know, that's not how I got a hold of those emails, those documents. Uh, City Hall was uh, not helpful, and the Diamond Project didn't want it out there either. But I got, you know, in a position with obviously public records requests and whatnot that, uh, you know, that they could not ignore, and I figured out what was going on, and I figured out they were moving towards, you know, a deal, and. I think it's great. I think it's great that some, you know, why does everybody want to keep it secret that they want to win? That's the other thing. <laughs> What's wrong with winning? What's wrong with, you know, this is like, you know, I, and I see this all the time, and I normally, you know, it, it kind of fires me up because I, when I see a city like Portland that has struggled and the vast majority of people who live in the Portland metropolitan area in the state of Oregon are good people, they're hardworking people, they have families, they're here for the right reasons, they love the region, they take care of each other, they're not, you know, throwing things and causing troubles and breaking into cars and, you know, they're not part of the problem, so to speak, okay? The vast majority of people are on board and moving in the right direction. So what's wrong with wanting a win for the city? What's wrong with wanting that, that uh, not-so-vocal majority? To get a W and for families to have a place to go and to raise some tax revenue and to create some jobs and to literally take a portion a segment of the city that is burned out and not doing so well and turn it into a W like there's a real opportunity to get a win there that I don't think we could ignore. All right. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. The five at five's coming up top of the hour. We'll play some punch it audio coming up as well. Leave it in. Anna has graced our uh, studio with her presence. Did that come out right? Something like that. You've graced us with your presence. <laughs> you are here. It sounds like I floated in like Linda in the Good Witch. Well, that's better than me going, there's a mouse in the house. Yes, anything's better than that. Like that's what I used to say. Mm-hmm. When you speaking of which, we were in Central Park and just casually. We were uh, in Central Park, what was it, uh, a couple of days ago at night, and we did uh, kind of a stroll through Central Park with the kids. And what we noted was we saw a couple of raccoons in yeah. Central Park, mm-hmm. and we saw various rodents running at night in Central Park. Great place to see a rodent if you want to see one, if that's your thing. Go to Central Park at night. <laughs> Um, I was telling somebody that, yeah. and they said, are you sure they were rodents like rats, were or rats. were they nutria? They were rats. They, I think I would know a nutria from a rat, right? If, does that make it any better? I guess. Is a nutria better than a rat or a rodent? I don't know. Um, nutria is like closer to a beaver than a rat, right? I don't know. I, what I was impressed with was our... Uh, I saw... I was on TikTok the other day, and I saw... <laughs> A uh, animal running across a stream, uh-huh. like hopping from rock to rock. Yeah. And people were like, what is that animal? Like they wanted to know. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, somebody said, that, you know, what is that animal? Nobody knew. And I showed it to the nine-year-old, and she said, that's a wolverine. <laughs> like without even hesitating. Really? And she's like Marlon Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't because she was fresh off a visit to the Natural History Museum? But she looked up. And just glanced at it, uh-huh. 
and then she was on her iPad. Yeah. And she said, that's a Wolverine. And then she went back to whatever she was doing on the wow. iPad. And, uh, and, in, and in fact, she was right. Uh-huh. It turned out to be a Wolverine. Really? Yes. She identified that thing. I, I didn't think yeah. Wolverines were real. Like, I thought that was an X-Men. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You uh, just thought that was a Hugh Jackman character. I didn't know that there was really a Wolverine. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Michigan Wolverines. It's a, that's, a, that's a real thing. That's a real animal. Hey, uh, I want to ask you a question. You're from the TV world. Yeah. That's where you work. That's where you exist. That's where you live. Um, can I ask you a question here? I've got some cuts here. Okay. The Disney CEO, Bob Iger, gave an interview with CNBC this morning. And I have three audio cuts of Bob Iger speaking. Okay. Okay. And so he's talking about, like, Disney's got problems. Mm-hmm. He was retired for 11 months. Yeah. He's worked for Disney for, like, 50 years. Yeah. He retired. The board said to him, we need you out of retirement. We need you to come back. He came back 11 months ago. He was only supposed to stay for two years. He is now committed to staying on longer. They have splintered ESPN and ABC News away from Disney. Okay. They appear to be moving towards offloading maybe ESPN, maybe offloading ABC News. Okay? Yeah. Because there's no money in linear TV anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's it's the business is worse than they thought. Mm-hmm. Well, here we go. Bob Iger, first of all, he starts talking here about the reason that they could find a strategic partner for ESPN. What would be the advantage of having a strategic partner then? What, what I mean, well, it could be it could be a variety of things. Could it be it could, a joint venture? It could, could it be, be somebody taking an ownership stake? I mean, possibly. Yeah, everything's on the and table. And why would you do that? I guess I'm trying well, to understand why it, you would. You already have 20 percent owner in, if they in come to the table. Yeah. With value, whether it's whether it's content value, whether it's distribution value. Um, whether it's capital, whether it just helps de-risk a business to some extent, but that's not wouldn't be the primary driver. But if they come to the table with value that enables ESPN to make a transition to its direct-to-consumer offering, then we're going to be very, you know, we're, we're going to be very open-minded about that. All right. Well, you've told the world now. I mean, but have you already been looking at that as an opportunity? Perhaps even having conversations. We about have it? been looking at it as an opportunity. We've had some conversations, but I, I don't want to elaborate. All right, so he's talking there about ESPN going direct to consumer, leaving the world of linear television where advertising drives the bus, and going to a model where ESPN becomes a product that people pay a monthly subscription fee for, and it's streamed to them, and you know that's how they thrive in that business. Mm-hmm. Now, Netflix has shown you that it can work. Yep. Hulu's shown you that it can work. Hulu, by the way is owned 66 percent of it is owned by disney Mm -hmm. so comcast right now owns a portion of espn there's been some talk about them maybe selling to comcast but disney backed away from that uh the prevailing thought now is that it may be apple it may be amazon it may be google who comes in as the partner on espn disney maybe or espn still owns maybe 51%, and Apple or somebody comes in as the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem being that, you know, they still don't want to give up on traditional linear programming because there's still money in it. Right. It's just they're watching the market dwindle as people are cord cutting. Like, everybody's, like, people are cord cutting. Right. Except for my parents, your parents, like, people are mostly cord cutting. Yeah. So 
let me play a little more before I get your comments here. Let's talk about, you know, Disney has cut $3 billion of their expenses as it pertains to content, okay? None of that has come in live sports programming. Mm-hmm. They're really cutting when it comes to Disney Plus and other ventures. Let's talk about why Disney will continue to spend to stay in sports. Here's Bob Iger. You're spending more and more money to do that. I mean, to keep the NBA, to keep the NFL, essentially renting the content that keeps this thing alive. I mean, is that the best use for your capital? Well, I know a lot's been said about renting versus owning. And um, if, if you can rent it and, and continue to be profitable from renting it, which we have been and we believe we will continue to be, then there's real value in staying in it. We're not, we're, we're, uh, we have great relationships with Major League Baseball and, and the National Hockey League and various college conferences and, of course, the NFL and the NBA. And, and it's not just about the live sports coverage you know, of those leagues, those teams. It's also about all the shoulder programming that throws off on ESPN and what you can do with it in a streaming world. You know, as a direct-to-consumer proposition, I talked about it being technology friendly in yeah. a way. There's so much more that can be done with it in terms of the way it's distributed, the way it's consumed. It's interesting just thinking about the Apple announcement of a few weeks ago and what the possibilities there, you know, that, that device lends itself to in terms of sports. What do you hear him saying there? Uh, what I hear him saying is that Linear is essentially dead and that they're going full bore on direct to consumer streaming and that it's going to be a positive thing. What I wonder about is how that changes the model. Because the thing with ESPN is, you know, when we all got it, when we all paid for it as part of some kind of like cable package, it's just on. Like every sports bar you go into, it's on because they've paid the package to, to show it. And so it makes what they put on ESPN that much more important for the people that are watching it. Like they really have to tailor their programming, I think, to the consumer. And, you know, I think they're watching the success that Amazon has had with Thursday Night Football on Prime, and they're taking note of that. Yeah, and I think they're also just saying that's the future. We need to get there. And what I heard Iger say in the rest of the interview was he knew it was bad. He knew eventually they were going to end up direct to consumer with ESPN. Yeah. And, you know, but he he's now realizing it's going to happen faster than he anticipated. Right. Um, all right. I want to play this uh, third and final cut that we have from Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney. Um, he out and out says, "We want to stay in the sports business." Uh, if you look at today's media landscape, sports stands very, very tall in terms of its ability to convene millions and millions of people all at once. Uh, there's almost a guarantee that that occurs. It's an advertiser's dream. There's a great demographic there. It lends itself to technology in many ways, both in terms of coverage, distribution, and consumption. And our position in that business is very unique. We have a great brand. We've had a great business. And we want to stay in that business. I like that. He mm-hmm. says we have a great brand. We had a great business. So he knows, as you are saying, that the days of linear traditional programming as it pertains to ESPN are done. He even went on to say he knows when they'll make the transition, but he didn't want to say it. 
And I, I kind of think everyone had talked about two years from now as being that time. Mm-hmm. So I, I reached out to a member of the Pac-12 CEO group. I, I reported this today at johnconzano.com. I said this earlier in the show. And I said, hey, how much is this Disney ESPN stuff, the stuff that Bob Iger talked about today, how much is it wrapped up in your delay? The fact that there's no deal right now. Mm-hmm. It feels like the Pac-12, there's something going on behind the scenes that's delaying everything. Right. And it could just be the optics of... Cutting a deal with ESPN and Disney right now aren't good while they're laying off seven thousand people. Could be, you know. Hey, sports is doing great. We're about to we're about to go into big business with the Pac-12. By the way, you're fired. Yeah. They don't like doing that. Companies don't like doing that, and justifiably so. But but maybe there's another reason there. I was told that this delay and this pivot in the industry is absolutely behind. It's absolutely the reason why the Pac-12 sort of is paused right now, and. I said, is this good or bad? Where What Bob Iger's saying today, where this is headed, is this good or bad for the Pac-12? Like, just is it a thumbs up or a thumbs mm-hmm. down? And I was told, and I want to read this quote directly because I don't want to mess it up. Like, this was the answer that came back to me when I asked that question. Um, it is eventually good. The short term caused and is causing a delay, but it will be worth the wait. But what does that mean? What, how does that wind up being good for the Pac-12? Because I think they are the only, I know they are the only Power 5 conference that right now has media rights to sell. Uh-huh. And if you are pivoting and you're ESPN, yeah. let's just say hypothetically Apple is that partner yeah. that Bob Iger's talking about. Right. You know, we've had conversations. Yeah. If you can bring distribution, if you can you know, sort of limit the, uh, the risk for uh-huh. us. Um, it, you know, Apple... They're in the business of sports streaming. They have the platform. Mm-hmm. They've got the technology. They've got Major League Soccer. They've got Major League Baseball. Um, it's possible that the Pac-12 comes in as the first and only Power 5 conference to come in, hey, we're giving you all our content. We're going to start this deal in 2024. We'll have a little bit on linear TV with ESPN, but when you pivot, you, everything's streaming, mm-hmm. and we're the first. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the Pac-12 that has looked woefully behind <laughs> the times and inept Right. Bunch of bumbling old guys yeah. stumbling around in the dark. Suddenly looks like they were cool. They just saw something nobody else did. But the truth of the matter is they're probably just in the right time, the right place. And let's be real, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, has already been talking to the Pac-12 about potentially carrying their games. Mm-hmm. So if I'm Apple, I'm going, yeah, we can get the Pac-12. That would be great to add to MLS and Major League Baseball. But if you're Apple and you can get partial ownership of ESPN, along with the Pac-12, that's a win for you, it's a win for the Pac-12, and it's a win for ESPN. This is how business gets done, Anna, on this show. We're the glue. (laughs) It's interesting because the conversations we've had up to this point have been, well, maybe it's too soon. Maybe it's too soon for the Pac-12 to strike a deal that's strictly nonlinear and cord-cutting, and you know, we're just not there yet as a country. But um, that doesn't appear to be relevant, or it, it appears to be less and less relevant, especially when you have Iger saying these kind of things. Yeah, and, and that was the thing. Like, you know, we we talked to Rick George, the Colorado AD, about this. We talked to George Klyovkov about this on Media Day last year, you know. And, it, you know, I asked him the question, that balance, you know, because the the streaming platforms have money. Yeah. Apple's got money. Amazon's got money. What they don't have is distribution. They don't have everybody's eyeballs on them. 
uh, ESPN's got the eyeballs. Fox has the eyeballs. So, you know, that's why the Big Ten Conference goes all in with Fox, because they go, hey, we got the money from Fox, we got a billion dollars from them, and we got the distribution. That is, you know, as good as it gets. And that's why the SEC goes all in with ESPN. Hey, we got the money, and we got the distribution. Well, the problem for the Pac-12 is, hey, they could take the money. They're going to get better money by going with Apple or Amazon or Streamer, but you're going to give up potential distribution. You're going to be a little bit lost for some people who aren't on the streaming platforms right. yet. But if you can rope in ESPN as part of your mm -hmm. deal, mm -hmm. now you go, hey, we're in the ESPN family until ESPN goes all streaming, and then we're in the Apple ESPN family at that point. That's kind of interesting to me because you can you can play the really interesting. the be, the best of both worlds. Right. And I've had you know I've not reported this, but I've had different members of the CEO group tell me, you know, I'm like, well, why aren't you guys speaking? Why aren't you giving your messaging? You should be out there. You're getting treated like whack a mole. You know, the mm -hmm. the Big Twelve people are all you know hitting on you and whatnot. And the answers come back like, hey, what matters is the scoreboard at the end. Right. In their minds. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that. From a brand standpoint, do you think they've made mistakes? Um, I, I, wished, I wished, as someone in media, that we would have heard from them more because that vacuum has allowed other people to kind of control the narrative. Um, but I guess in the end, if they get the best deal out of it, I mean, the flip side of that is that they've been talking all along publicly and they say the wrong thing that then caves the deal, right? So yeah, I guess. they've taken the wisdom of keeping things closer to the vest and not jeopardizing whatever is happening behind closed doors. We have so much more to talk about. Plus, we have Punch It Audio. We got great sound today. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. One of my pet peeves in this radio studio is we got all this equipment. We've got all this fancy lighting and equipment, and Anna, at the end of last segment, takes her headset off. Judah, did you hear that? She pulls her headset off as the you know, as we're going to break, and I'm going like, hey, come on, like let's wait till the end of the segment before you take your headset off. Well, you've forgotten everything. Think we live in a barn here? <laughs> it's not like leaving the door open, but yeah, you'd think I'd know better. Judah, did you hear it? I need confirmation that somebody else cares besides John. Well, it doesn't you know, go ahead. You know, it's you know, it's, it's a thing, but I thought it was John because oh. uh, sometimes you know, correct me if I'm wrong, John. Maybe I am wrong, but uh, sometimes you know, you're ready, you're ready to go to break. You go to break, you just whip off the headset, and it's done. And I can hear that little, you know, the microphone going down to the table before we start a commercial spot. And I'm like, oh, okay, he's done. Oh. Never, I no, never, it's probably me. I, it's never me. I'm gonna <laughs> guarantee you that. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm not gonna do that. It's like my first day in a broadcast capacity. Every time, Judah. Oh well, mystery <laughs> solved. But it's good to have you guys back. That's the important thing. It's good to be back, Anna. How was New York for you? I already gave my assessment of being in New York City with uh, children. Yeah, it was great. It was uh, sticky, humid, loud, alive, uh, bright. But very interesting. Like, it's so fun to go somewhere like that with kids and see it through their eyes. Like, I, I'd been to most of the places that we took them. I had not been to the 9-11 memorial. And that was... Um, you were in tears. Oh, I was I was ugly crying from pretty much the moment we stepped foot inside. Why, why did that move you? 
Oh, come on. Um, you know, it's like it's like the, the thing that you know happened and you know how terrible it was. Um, you think of it occasionally throughout the year, especially on 9-11, but then to be faced with all of the mementos and the audio recordings of um, people who were on the planes and calling their loved ones to say goodbye. I mean, the the exhibit does an incredible job of bringing to life the humanity of that day, and um, and and frankly, the <laughs> just the wall of faces of the people who perished that day. I kept pointing out to the girls, look at all the helpers, look at all of the firefighters, look at all of the police officers who ran toward danger as everyone else was running from it. And um, yeah, I mean, we had conversations too about whether we should even take them. They're only yeah. seven and nine. And there were some parts of the exhibit, you know, that there were videos that showed the people that were jumping from the towers and they had that kind of off to the side. So there were portions of the exhibit that we didn't take the girls to intentionally. Um, but there's a fine balance, right, between wanting to educate them about this terrible thing that happened and that evil does exist in the world, but also wanting them to understand what happened that day. And it was interesting is, you know, because they had uh, Osama bin Laden on the wall and they had the, like the FBI. There's a whole thing where they, they just outline who were the terrorists, who were the 19 hijackers, how did they get trained, how did they get in the country. I mean, there's a whole part of the exhibit deals with that. And the nine-year-old looked at Osama bin Laden, and I said, that's the guy that was the mastermind of this. And I, and uh, she said, what happened to him? And I said, they hunted him down and killed him. And she nodded her head like she was okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, she also pointed out that there was a $5 million reward that the FBI was offering for his location. Do you think uh, somebody in his inner circle turned him in? Had to have been, don't you think? Yeah, I think so, too. I think somebody took the five mil. Somebody got paid. You know, SEAL Team 6 are, are intelligence people. Like, I haven't done all the reading on that. Yeah. But I got to uh, I gotta think that somebody in his inner circle needed to get paid, ultimately. Yeah. So he got betrayed in the end. But um, it uh, powerful, powerful scene there um, at the... At the uh, at the museum. The city itself, though, is um, so vibrant. You know, I love being able to walk through there with the girls and to just show them the the diversity of people and sound and food and smells. culture. <laughs> smells. Garbage on the streets. Uh, yes. I mean, yeah. um, I don't know. There's, there's beauty in that, too. But it was also nice uh, to see some family. Uh, out in Sag Harbor, had never been to that part of the country. It is amazing. It's beautiful. I understand why people talk about the Hamptons and how special that is to get away from the city. Um, for people who never, who don't, haven't been, I'd never been anywhere like that. Like yeah. that's just not my beat. Uh-huh. And uh, so we've got an aunt who lives out there. She said, "Come on out, spend a night or two here." So we drove out. We rent a car. We drive out to. Uh, Sag Harbor, and it's about a uh, two-hour and 20-minute drive out there. You get out there, and it really is a different pace of life, and I understand why, like, the uber-wealthy 
people of New York City have that extra house that they go to to get away from it all because they literally are getting away from it all. And, you know, you, per you take your car on a ferry and you go here and you, you go down to the market and you get some crab or whatever they're getting. And, and I'm like, this is a pretty good life here in the Truman story. I love how we're just walking along collecting shells on the beach and your aunt, who is so understated, like she's this amazing retired photographer for the New York Times, okay? This woman's been all over the world, covered wars and poverty and, uh, you know, shot children in Cambodia who were child soldiers and whatnot. And here she is just walking along the beach with us and she just kind of casually says, oh yeah, there's Jimmy Buffett's sailboat. Yeah, Because that's house. his dock and that's, and his... that's his house. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're like, wait, what? Like, as in Margaritaville, Jimmy Buffett? She's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Jimmy no, Buffett, no Steven Spielberg. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think who else she said uh, lived out there. Like, she knew all the story ladies. We're walking by the houses. She'd be like, that's where Billy Joel's, uh, you know, ex-wife lives. And that's where, you know. <laughs> and there's only like 80 families that are living around there. So I guess you'd probably see some of the same people. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of... Yeah, this isn't my thing either. There's a bunch of ladies walking small dogs down the main uh -huh. drag. You know, they're walking these little dogs. Yeah. Well, they're on their yoga pants walking their little dog, you know, along. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I could sit on a bench and watch this for a couple of days. I also could visit it. I don't know if I could live in it. You know? Yeah. Could you live in it? I could. I could. <laughs> you could try. Yeah. <laughs> could I live in the Hamptons? I could, I could live in the Hamptons. I don't think I could do I it. I could manage it. Yeah. I could eke out an existence it, there. It did feel a little bit like the Truman Show. <laughs> yeah. Because like, it was like a little uninhabited, but, you know, super, uh, super nice. Uh, all right. Coming up, we have the five at five. Let's get back to the real world. Okay. Can mm -hmm. we transport back to the sure. real world? We'll do the five at five. Anna's got five great stories. Is it Damian Lillard free or not? My five at five? Your five at five. It's Damian Lillard free because I assume at this point that you've already had some chatter about him. All right. But coming up. After the 5 at 5, we're going to talk a little bit about what others are saying around the league when it comes to Lillard. Do they have to make a trade? Uh, and is the position that Joe Cronin finds himself in today, is, uh, is, it, uh, is it an uncomfortable position? Does he have any leverage? And oh, by the way, is Damian Lillard risking anything? Is he risking his legacy? with this trade request. We'll talk about that in the 5 o'clock hour. Anna's got the 5 at 5, though, coming up. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Every day at 5 o'clock on this show, we give you the five biggest, baddest stories in the land. We tell you what uh, we think about them, and we present them to you. I want to know what you think about them as well. Anna, are you ready? Ready. Are you hydrated? Mm-hmm. You're ready to do this. Yep. Judah, are you ready? I'm ready. The Let's do it. The Five at Five. A little bit rusty on my end. Uh, the number one story, I almost went right into it, is... The NCAA will not expand the men's basketball tournament for now, but the committee is still considering many options for the future. So a statement from the NCAA came out today saying the expansion is not imminent but a, a potential enlargement of the 68 team field remains on the table this was after a committee 
said that uh, NCAA sports should consider expanding their postseasons. The biggest expansion for the tournament field came in 1985 when it went from 53 teams to 64, then 68 in 2011, um, well, 64 to 65 in 2001, then eventually 68 in 2011. Uh, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey co-chaired this committee, and he they also announced that he has signed on as uh, an extension to remain as the league's commissioner through 2028. Yeah, so he'll still have a big voice in this. Yeah, he's doing a good job, uh, but I don't like I don't like the the pitch that he was making uh, in January and February. I talked to Sankey about the NCAA, and he was part of the NCAA's transfer. Formation committee, they wanted to expand to like a hundred teams, eighty teams, ninety teams. They were looking at all sorts of possibilities. It's too many teams. There's something special about a nice round even number. Sixty four worked for me. I'll buy sixty eight because you know, okay, we'll have some play in games. But I don't want to see this thing watered down and out of hand. It's one of the great spectacles in sports. That first. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of the real tournament when it's down to 64 teams is magic, and I'm glad they left magic alone. Number two story is. We've talked about this before. The Dodgers and the Padres will be opening the 2024 Major League Baseball season with the first regular season series in South Korea. That will make history. But in addition to that, the World Tour will feature stops in Mexico City, and London for the second straight year. And the Mets and the Phillies will play two games. Uh, well, they'll play in London. The Rockies and the Astros will play in Mexico. And also the Red Sox and the Tampa Bay Rays will play in the Dominican mm. Republic, a pair of uh, spring training games. How about that? Well, baseball doing what the NFL and others have figured out, like, hey, uh, we fished out our our uh, local markets let's try to expand a little bit and especially because you've got international players and the success of the world baseball classic as evidence some good market research that there's an appetite for this stuff outside of the united states i just don't want to see the baseball turn to a uh you know uh, a, a situation where they end up um you know going and saying hey let's do uh let's put a franchise in berlin you know that doesn't work for me or a franchise in japan doesn't work for me i'm okay with some spring training stuff but that's about it number three so by now you've probably heard that former sports doctor larry nasser the guy that was uh, convicted of sexually abusing female gymnasts You've probably heard that he was stabbed six times in the chest and twice each in the neck and the back. Well, the inmate, 49-year-old Shane McMillan, who stabbed him, told prison officials that he attacked Nasser in his cell after that former U.S. women's gymnastic team doctor made a crude comment while watching Wimbledon coverage. McMillan said that Nasser made a comment about wanting to see girls playing in the Wimbledon women's match, and that's what instigated him to go after Nasser. You know what? I uh, I can't say that I feel bad for the guy, because frankly I don't. 
uh, I'm a little surprised that it was a Wimbledon comment and not the fact that the guy was a creeper all along that got him shanked. But, you know, he's going to have a tough time in there, and he should. You know, is it bad for me that I don't feel bad for him? Should I have empathy for him? Uh, you don't have to have empathy for him. You look a little disgusted at, uh, at having to read that story. I am kind of disgusted. Yeah. Number four, I'm feeling good that I'm, I'm remembering the numbers. <laughs> well, Gabby Douglas uh, is saying that she is coming back and competing in 2024. So another gymnast making her venture back. She might, uh, you might recall that she was a 2012 Olympic all-around champion, 2015 world all-around silver medalist. She has announced via Instagram that she will be coming back and competing in 2024 after stepping back a little bit. Uh, remember she got, I forget what she called it, the, uh, she got the, the, the yips or whatever the it was. The twisties? The twisties. She, you, you know, think when, Gabby Douglas got the twisties? Isn't that what happened? You know? Or that was Simone Biles that got that the twisties. That was Simone Biles. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure. She might have also gotten the twisties. No, 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 no. Yeah. That was Simone Biles. I, I'm, I'm more of a Simone Biles guy. Yeah. Because, you know, I've seen what she can be. Gabby, mm-hmm. is Gabby Douglas just coming back because there's more money in it now? What? <laughs> what's, what's going on? I don't know Stay what away. the reasons are. Get out of here. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> Not that I care. No, certainly I'm an expert on gymnastics. Well, she's setting her eyes on the Paris Olympics, though. Okay, so. this is just talk. What? It's talk until you get there. <laughs> I, I I ride or die with Simone Biles. Okay. Have you seen her? Yes. I don't think Gabby Douglas is anything to shrug at, though. <laughs> They're all really good. But uh, still, still, all these gymnasts are great. Don't at me, okay? <laughs> Okay. Jade Carey, does she have the twisties? <laughs> no. No. No, don't even say that. I have the twisties. Don't say That's why that. I don't do flips. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, we get on a trampoline. And if somebody asks me, why don't you do like a backflip? Oh, I got the twisties. <laughs> you have the twisties just getting out of bed in the morning. <laughs> you twist to something. I've got just getting out of your bed, okay? Yeah, yeah. I got the twisties <laughs> right now. Number five story, as you oh, see boy. it. Uh, well, this one caught my eye only because it made me wonder about other people and the lines of work that they did not go for. So Stephen A. Smith of ESPN fame uh, said he almost left sports media early on to work in banking. This is a story that was in The Athletic. Uh, when he was a cub reporter in North Carolina, he called Rob Parker, a baseball writer in Cincinnati, and told him that he was quitting the business and applying for a job at Wachovia. They had met earlier at a convention, and Parker told him to rip up that application to the bank and said, you know, you need to, you need to pursue this. So, like him or not, Stephen A. Smith remains in sports journalism. He's one of those people that's such a lightning rod. People either love him or hate him. No, he's opinionated. Yeah. You know, I, I, I respect that about Stephen A. Smith. I've only, I've only had two real conversations with him, like, you know, as a person. Yeah. Because there's a different conversation you're having if he's interviewing someone or you're in a media setting when he's, the personality yeah. is on. And then there's a whole nother conversation as a person. Mm-hmm. And I like Skip Bayless when he's off air 
he's a different person. <laughs> there's a there's a little bit of a um, public persona, so to speak, going on. I don't want to say it's an act. Yeah. But I doubt that uh, Dick Vitale, for example, when he was, you know, running around the house 10 years ago, I doubt he was running around telling his kids or his grandkids or his wife, It's a diaper dandy, baby. Somebody get the paper. Put the dinner on the table. I don't think he was doing that. Okay? I think with Skip Bayless, there's a little bit of an act going on. And I think with Stephen A. Smith, it's the same thing. Like, you know, there's a little persona. D- does that exist in TV news, too? Oh, completely. Yeah. Absolutely. Come on. Uh, it made me wonder, though, you know, like, it made me wonder what you would be doing had you not gone into sports journalism. Hmm. Judah, what he would be doing. What I would be doing? Yeah. I'd be playing uh, left field for the Giants, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Still. That would be your alternate career um, path. It was either this or that. Yes. You know, I no. don't know what I'd be doing. No in between. If I hadn't gone into this, mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'd gone to law school. Maybe I'd be commissioner of the Pac-12 or something. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know. Maybe, uh, I don't know. I never thought about that. Really? Not really. Well, you taught for a little while. Yeah, right out of school because I had no school. job. And I that, was like, that you know, taught you enough that you, you weren't going to I don't have teacher. that gene, that, yeah. t- that, pa- that patience thing that teachers have. Yeah. I don't have it, you know? You mean the part where you shut a kid in the closet because no, you were disciplining that's, him? No, that's a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> Okay. Sorry. I think the statute of limitations Josh. has passed. Sorry, Josh. Uh, he was the, he was a kid who talked too much, and I finally got tired of him yapping in the classroom. And I said, "Go, you're in the closet for five minutes," and I put him in the closet and shut the door. Yeah. Did yes. you forget? I, you'd probably get. They would be on social media today. Mm-hmm. Look at the teacher who put the kid in the closet. What about you, Judah? What would you be doing if you weren't in sports journalism? Mm, that's a really tough question. I, you know, the uh, dreamer side of me would be like, "Hey, I'd be a musician, you know, with something, be be a drummer somewhere, or, uh, or uh, yeah, probably I'd be a drummer in some band, living living big." Mm, well, I there like you that. go. You'd be getting yelled at by the neighbors for drumming. I did. I had my parents were kind enough to let me have a drum set in the garage growing up, and yeah. uh, but we also had very very understanding neighbors, so I got I got away with some things. <laughs> drummer. This guy's yeah. a drummer. I, n- I yeah. would not have guessed that you about didn't, Judah. I didn't tell you that? Oh. No. No, I didn't know that. It's the first time, yeah. man. Oh, man. I had you down as a guitarist. Well, that's a little bit easier to play domestically I in the house. the harmonica. Well, you're right about that, too. I played the harmonica. What? Drums were first and harmonica was second, so yeah. good, good job, John. I and then guitar, guitar, guitar was third and piano was fourth. So. Hey, oh, my gosh. Uh, Anna, what would you be doing? Uh, I would be in business. So I would be helping businesses. Um, I would either be in business or politics. Mm-hmm. I at one point You'd wanted be to be like an ambassador to Taiwan mm. or like an ambassador to the U.S. from Taiwan. Ooh, could you still do that? That would be awesome. For you? Yeah. Yeah? The ambassadors and one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I get to go to all these events. I have no responsibility. <laughs> I'm just hanging around. Everybody thinks I'm a spy. Yeah. That would be yeah. awesome for me. Yeah. That works for me. Yeah. You as the ambassador. Well, we can work on it. Now, what, John, you're a writer to your core. Do you think you'd be doing something with writing, even if it wasn't in sports? Like, could you I, I be a screenwriter? Know. Yeah, I, I guess I could. I don't know. I don't know. Could I? 
Uh, like I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. Are you gonna uh, Are you gonna write a book at any point? Uh, I don't think I have time right now. Somebody, uh, I, we were talking about this with uh, Sally Jenkins, Washington's Post columnist. We saw her in New York, and she's written like twelve books. And the question came, "Hey, would you ever want to write a book?" And I was like, "I'm writing a column every day. I've got three daughters. I'm doing a three hour radio show. Yeah, I'd love to write a book." But uh, I don't have an <laughs> extra minute to go write a book. Like, what kind of time does that take? If you could just sleep between 2 and 3 a.m., that would leave you a lot of time Maybe to write a book. Maybe chat GPT a book? No. Ooh. Could I do that? No? You do that now. <laughs> like, no. It, that's I When I do something, too, I have to do it. Like, I go all in doing it, right? I don't, I'm not a dabbler. So if I'm going to do a radio show, I'm doing the radio show. If I'm going to write a column, I'm writing. I wrote twice today. If I'm going to be a dad, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a husband, I'm going to be a husband. But I'm not going to dabble in this thing. Like where, you you know, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to have a, uh, I'm going to have a side hustle as a, uh, I'm going to have a food cart. You know? No, it's not, <laughs> not for me. It's, not, it's just not going to work. I'm not going to be good at the other things. And I'm not one of these people who believes you only should do one thing and you should be really good at it. But I'm just saying, you, we all know our bandwidth. I know my bandwidth. Yeah. I have, I'm right at it, okay? With the BFT Foundation, doing this radio show, doing uh, being a dad to three daughters and a husband, I'm right there. I'm in my lane right now. <laughs> so I'm happy right there. But here's the thing, like, and I agree with you on business. Like, you, you've pretty much made the comment to me. And this is an interesting comment you made. I think one time you told me that I underachieve. It's not what I said. That's kind of what I heard. It's not what I said. Despite all the uh, all the things that I'm doing, oh you were like, gosh. "Oh, you could be doing so much more." No, but <laughs> I have sounds so cool. I have. It actually was a compliment. I know what you meant. I have an entrepreneurial spirit. Yes. And so, if I think if I weren't doing this, I would. Like, part of my brain likes to work on problems, mm -hmm. works on things that, like, societal things that we do wrong, that we don't do well enough. I'm constantly thinking, how do we do it better? And so I think I probably would have figured out some way to be a billionaire, <laughs> inventing or fixing some problem <laughs> that we have. And instead, eh, just doing this. So Anna's like, eh, you could have been so much more. I get it. That's I get it. I could have been Elon Musk. I could. I could have invented an iPad or something. You've seen his track history on relationships. I'm not sure you want to be Elon Musk in that way. <laughs> uh, uh. But in the end, um, you know, look, I had a I had a great email conversation one time with Mark Cuban where we went back and forth over how to fix the sports media world. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's really interesting. I went back and looked at our exchange, and I was telling him that. You know, newspaper. He was saying sports media is is never coming back, hmm. right? It's gone this way. It's the ship has sailed. Print newspapers, they blew it, mm -hmm. and I agree with that. The print newspapers blew it. The New York Times canceling their sports department. Oh, you know, in the last week, terrible. Saying, hey, we're just going to outsource it to the Athletic. Horrible, horrendous business decision. Terribly disrespectful to the history of the paper and the people who've invested time effort and energy in it but um but it's a uh, it pales in comparison to what small and mid-sized papers have done to their staff 
You know, when when you look around after being at a newspaper for 20 years and you see, hey, there used to be like 68 people working in this department. Now there's eight. How do you cover anything anymore? But Cuban and I had kind of, this was like 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. had gone back and forth. And I had said, you know, I really feel like the the individual reporters will be the brand the individual reporter people will follow mark stein on the nba mm-hmm. they'll follow adrian wojnarowski on the nba they'll follow um you know jeff passan or john morosi on major league baseball um that the individual reporters will be the uh, pe- so to speak the pez dispenser giving out the candy yeah. well here i am you know i'm kind of in that space and i think if you look around the country the large media outlets have pivoted to Stephen A. Smith. Mm-hmm. They have pivoted to individual, you know, their, the, you know, the, the hub is essentially Adrian Wojnarowski and, you know, all, uh, it, it's Shams and it's uh, on the NBA and it's Chris Haynes and it's people. You know, nobody's talking about CBS Sports or ESPN. They're talking about Woj. Mm-hmm. They're talking about Chris Haynes. They're talking about Shams. They're not talking about The Athletic. It's the individual reporter. Who is the brand? Hmm. That now. was 15 years ago. You but said that. I, yeah, but the infrastructure. I don't have the brains to do the technology behind all that. I was going like to say. I mean, creating you could, if you could have launched Substack, Substack you right, know? here she goes. I could have been somebody. <laughs> you know what? You had a scholarship to Stanford. You could have just gone to Stanford and married like the guy who invented Google. Could have. You could have been could've. somebody, Anna. Instead, you ended up on this radio show with me. Here I am. Sorry. <laughs> Leave it here. Get the BFT. Not a dabbler. <laughs> I rather enjoyed that last segment of radio. I got a bunch of text messages from friends who listened to the show who said, hey, I'm really happy you're not a dabbler. Also, really glad that Anna married you and ended up on the radio. Sorry, Anna. <laughs> That's how it went for you. Uh, we've had that conversation before. She had a full ride in high school. Full ride to Pepperdine, ab- academic scholarship, all that. She also had a scholarship to Stanford. And I look at her sometimes, and I'm like, why did you go to Pepperdine? I would have went to Stanford in a heartbeat. Judah, I give you a scholarship to one of those places. You can go to Stanford or Pepperdine. Where are you going? Tell you what, John. Uh, just one time I drove by the Pepperdine campus up on True. the hill. True. It's hard, hard to turn, there. Hard to turn that down. <laughs> it is nice. And, you know, there's pressure at Stanford, you know? There's a lot, lot less pressure at Pepperdine. Pac-12 school. Stanford's like a... 30, 40 year, uh, you get a bunch of relationships, you know, you're expected to invent something, I think, or make a big deal. You know, I had, our high school valedictorian went to Stanford, and I, her parents were, I think, a little bit disappointed. She went to Stanford and then decided she wanted to be like an elementary school teacher. And I was like, good for you. You have a good heart. That's what you want to do. But I think her parents were like, you know what? You're going to Stanford. You need to go into business. You need to get an MBA. Something like that. You're right about the pressure. Maybe there, maybe there been too much pressure. Your parents, uh, did they, did they want you to do anything particular with your degree? What'd you, no, what'd they think no. about you'd go in English lit? They didn't. My parents, my, uh, that's a whole nother conversation. Did you go my, English lit or English writing? English lit. Yeah, I was English literature major. Okay. Um, okay. I, okay. Here's my deal with my parents. My parents got married young. They were way too young to have kids. They, they were from a generation, like a lot of our listeners probably grew up with parents who were married in their late teens, early 20s. My parents, they had four kids by the time they were, what, 28 years old? It's My dad's playing professional baseball. My mom's driving around the country in a VW bus with two little kids. Like, 
you know, uh, I'm just probably lucky to be alive. Like my, you know, my parents were like, you know, making it up as they go and bless them for that. Did the best they could. But neither one of my parents, my dad, because he signed with the Mets out of high school at 17 years old, he didn't go to college right out of uh, high school. And my mom went to community college but and later became a nurse in life, but she didn't go to college either. And so by the when I was going through, hey, I got pretty good grades. Um, you know, I, I had some things on my resume that made me a decent student. I didn't have the best grades, but I had really I had strong grades. And I got into a variety of schools right out of high school. I was, you know, I didn't have a bunch of scholarship offers like Anna, but I was into UC Davis, admitted. I was into Santa Clara. I was into St. Mary's. I was wanting to play baseball. Um, my parents left me alone. My parents said, hey, you make the decision. It's your decision, which I kind of, in hindsight, wish that they had been a little more vocal. I've told them that. I was like, why didn't you just tell me, go to UC Davis? Because I went to community college. And, and I always tell kids who go to community college, like, it's okay if you're not ready. With me, I just wasn't ready to make a decision, and I didn't really have good information. I didn't have a parent going, here's the path to where you want to go. Mm. Here's the internship you want to take. I learned that on the fly. And so in hindsight, like it's probably why with our sophomore in college now, who's a junior to be, blows my mind, she already will be a junior, but it it's kind of why – when she was a high school sophomore and junior, I went, let's go take some college tours. Because my parents didn't do that. Like, I didn't get a peek at these schools. I didn't know, I didn't have any idea what it looked like until I had to make a decision. And so I think that probably shaped the fact that I went to community college. And I'm glad for it. Like, I got that experience. I got a good education. I became an English literature major. I played some baseball in college. But I think, in hindsight, the right academic school for me would have been UC Davis. Hmm. And who knows? I might have invented, uh, you know, an agricultural fertilizer or something. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I, wasn't that, uh, I think Mike Bellotti and Nick Eliotti got some yes. history there, don't well, they? It's interesting because I I ended up at Cal State Chico right. where Mike Bellotti coached. And, you know, we played in baseball against UC Davis. We were in the same conference that played against UC Davis. Now They're now in the big sky, but... We played UC Davis, and I can remember being in the outfield at a game at Davis and looking into the Davis dugout and going, you know, I could have I could have been in that dugout. I would have fit in that dugout. Like, you know, I think for college kids, the important thing that I would tell kids who are stuck like I was, like I didn't have it figured out like Anna did coming out of high school, I always tell those kids, I say, look, if you don't know what you don't want to do, if you aren't sure where to go, it's okay. I'm here to tell you it works out. You figure it out. You, there's a little Forrest Gump in my story like anybody else's story. You just kind of keep making the decision that's in front of you and try to get the decision in front of you right. And in the end, you know, you'll uh, you'll uh, end up in the right position. So it's interesting that, you know, Anna ends up on this radio show. I end up on this radio show. Very different <laughs> paths to this point. Uh, let's play some Punch It Audio. I got so much to talk about. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's talk, let's start with uh, Frank Asola, who's talking about Damian Lillard and the Miami Heat. 
Isola joined Dan Patrick to talk about it. He thinks it will happen, but it could take a while. Punch it. I think it eventually will happen. I love the fact that Joe Cronin has to come out and remind everyone, we get it. Pat Riley's great. He's the godfather. And the Miami Heat fans are all crazy. They think Damian Lillard should have been traded there a week ago. And you have the people in the media and NBA players think that Damian Lillard should get just get whatever he wants. Well, Joe Cronin, his best interest is the Portland Trailblazers. And guess what? He's allowed to want to do what's best for Portland and get a good deal for them. No one knows Joe Cronin. So the first move that he's ever really going to make that people are paying attention to is trading one of the most popular players, if not the most popular player, in franchise history. Is he allowed to get a good deal back for him? Or is it just about making Damian Lillard happy, the Miami Heat fan base happy, and Pat Riley happy? Like It'll happen at some point, but it's complicated, Dan. It's probably going to include multiple teams. When you do that, these trades uh, tend to take a while. Look, the trades take a while, but I think Frank... The one piece that Frank, and I like Frank, I've known him a long time, the one piece that he doesn't know and that other national media members don't understand and grasp is the ownership situation, the conundrum at one center court that surrounds Jody Allen, Burt Cold, all of that. It literally is a confederacy of dunces. It li- There's no other way to put it. And it is, um, it is going nowhere fast. And I think that's going to be part of the frustration and I think season ticket holders have felt it. I think media members have felt it. And I think Damian Lillard and his agent Aaron Goodwin are getting a dose of it now. Because I don't think there's going to be a great resolution for Dame. And by great, I mean, I don't think it's happening fast. Dave Deckard, Blazers Edge, talking about the legacy of Damian Lillard. Is he risking his legacy? Here he is on this show. Not a bit. I mean, the only controversy is of the abstract kind. Well, the guy has a max contract. He signed an extension, and now he's demanding a trade. I think some people around the NBA are raising eyebrows about that. But it's the same way in which people say, wow, we should get that those divorce laws changed because that seems unfair. That doesn't mean they think you shouldn't get divorced. They're perfectly okay with your spouse leaving they just in general don't want that to happen to them or at large that's the only sore spot in this other than that the entire rest of the nba is saying about time uh portland fans will probably be understanding Uh, all dame has to do is go and play somewhere else and he's going to receive greater exposure and succeed and you know what as soon as he retires the blazers won't be able to retire his jersey quick enough. So, I mean, there's nothing at risk here for Damian Lillard at all other than some temporary friction caused by any divorce. Uh, I think the Blazers have slightly more at risk, but you know what? That's something they're going to have to deal with. If they were worried about that, they should have fixed this in 2020, not in 2023. Let's talk about 2016, not 2020. I think that the Blazers were set on this path then. But I disagree a little bit with Dave because I do think there's some risk for Damian Lillard. I think if this drags on, I think of Lillard, you know, let's just say he says, uh, I'm holding out. I won't suit up for the Blazers. And the Blazers say you're under contract. We're paying you. We owe you $217 million. You're under contract through 2027. I think there could be some bad feelings, and there will be some bad feelings if it comes to that. I don't know if it's going to come to that, but I'm kind of looking and going, eh, if this gets ugly, it could get ugly. Ultimately, though, I think 20 years from now, his jersey number's hanging from the rafters. 
He's probably given a standing ovation when he comes back into the arena because I think people largely understand that the team just didn't do enough around him. The question now becomes his exit and how clumsy it will look and be. Albert Breer talking about Michael Penix Jr. on the Dan Patrick Show. Washington's quarterback back for another season. Punch it. Well, I, I said I think Nick's is five years. Okay. Um, but George Travis is six years, right? And Penix is six years. And that's like the COVID effect is the guy's got the extra years of eligibility. And Penix is interesting because I think he's got some physical ability. But it's sort of like Nick's a little bit in that, like, a lot of people didn't like his Indiana tape. And then he went to play for Kalen DeBoer at Washington. And I think there's that thing, you know, like the, the, that you hear sometimes, is it the offense or is it the quarterback? And Bo Nix is going to have the opportunity to answer those questions this year at Oregon because he's losing his offensive coordinator who went to Arizona State to be the head coach. You know, the question is with Penix, I think it's going to be a little bit more of, can he dispel all the questions that he had hanging over him at Indiana playing in a little bit of a different type of offense at Washington. But there is some talent there, and, uh, yeah, he'd be another one. I should have thrown him in the mix. But that sort of tells you how big the group is, too, is that there's a half dozen guys who I think have an opportunity to maybe play their play their way into the first-round discussion, or at the very least into, like, the top 100 discussion. Look, Michael Penix Jr., coming back, being healthy all of last season, was a huge advantage to Washington. They are much in the same situation that the Blazers were in like a year or two ago. The question, and what I mean by that is, you have a star player in a window of opportunity at Washington. It'll be really interesting to see if Kalen DeBoer in Washington put enough around their quarterback this offseason to make his talent maximized. Last year, they didn't have the run game. And they were one-dimensional on offense. They were only passing. They also didn't have a great defense. Can they make slight adjustments with Michael Penix Jr.? If they can, look out. Because it's what you need to do when you get a quarterback like that at his position. Similarly, Bo Nix is at Oregon. Is he a name to watch? He opened some eyes. He's got a new offensive coordinator this year in Will Stein. Albert Breer talked about Bo Nix. Give me some other names that we should keep an eye on this upcoming season. That, yes, Caleb Williams is one. Drake May would be two. And then who's going to be that third quarterback off the board? Sure. Like, one name that that kind of kept coming up when I talked to more people was Bo Nix at Oregon, who, you know, I think was seen as a very flawed player playing in a flawed offense at Auburn. And I think he opened a lot of eyes Mm. with what he did last year at Oregon. And being able to do that again, even though he lost his offensive coordinator and even though he lost some offensive linemen in his sixth year in college this year, I think could get him in the first round discussion. Uh, And I think he's a little closer to that than some of the other guys. Now, there are guys that I think have more talent than him, and two of them would be Quinn Ewers at Texas and J.J. McCarthy at Michigan, where those guys have talent to potentially go in the first round. The question is, are they going to develop like they need to develop? Like they aren't finished products yet. Um, you know, when I, Trent Dilfer, who, you know, like, and as you know, sees all these kids from high school on up and has seen a lot of these guys through the Elite 11 program since they were teenagers, said Quinn Ewers has like a Jeff George arm, right? And I think when you watch Texas on Saturdays, you can see that. So, but Ewers is still pretty raw. So playing another year for Steve Sarkeesian at Texas, does he get there where he's the third quarterback off the board? J.J. McCarthy's another one where he was up and down at points last year, but he won his first 12 starts at Michigan. So is he in the conversation? So 
I, I think those three names, Nick's, McCarthy, yours, would be in the conversation. Jordan Travis at Florida State's another one. And I think that's what's so intriguing about this year's class. You've got a clear one, you got a clear two, and then you've got like this clump of players where there's real talent and they're going to kind of duke it out for draft position over the course of the next six months. Look, uh, Bo Nix and the return of Bo Nix to Oregon. Fascinating backstory. I can't wait to hear from Bo Nix next Friday, a week from Friday, a week from tomorrow at Pac-12 Media Day. The Ducks are bringing him. They're going to let him talk. We're going to have him on this show. I'm going to ask him about the decision to come back. I'm going to press him a little bit. You know, was it just the money? Was it the platform? What advice was he getting? Um, I'm really interested to hear what Bo Nix has to say about his return and what Dan Landing has to say, you know, just the same as Michael Penix Jr., about really taking advantage of the opportunity that you have with a quarterback like Bo Nix. Tyler Shuck, former Oregon Duck, he's now on a team at Texas Tech that he says has good culture. Here he is as part of Big 12 Media Day. Punch. I mean, we just have a lot of older guys, and we have a, accountability for each other. I, I've never been a part of a team that has such a good culture um, in which we're all, I mean, there's literally no clicks on the team. We're all really good friends. We all hang out with each other. And, that, you know, I hang out with the defensive guys as much, if not more, than, you know, my offensive teammates. And, I mean, it's been so much fun this offseason just growing and building with each other. And, you know, I think if there's an issues that arise or if something, you know, happened during this team conditioning or we have an issue or something's going well, you know, we're the ones that are addressing it. You know, the coaches obviously are calling the plays and have the final say, but, you know, they give us the freedom to, to go out there and play and, and play on our own, play free. Um, and I think that's really why we've had success and, you know, hopefully have continued success. Is that some shade thrown at Oregon from Tyler Shuck? I don't think so. I think that's what you say. And, you know, he was on Big 12 Media Day, and I think he's got to do what's best for him. Uh, Duck fans probably, were they disappointed, Judah, with his tenure, do you think? What the prevailing thought, if you bring his name up with Duck fans, would be what? I honestly, I don't know, because I think people are split on him. Um, it's funny, because it dovetails with Anthony Brown's legacy. Shuck, that 2020 COVID season, that yep. Stanford opener, looked freaking great, you know? Yep. And then the big win at Washington State. The Oregon State loss is is a blemish, and but they still put up a lot of points. It's just a weird year overall that you still went to the Fiesta Bowl, but it's the fact that you know Mario Cristobal and and Marcus Arroyo started going to uh, Anthony Brown in the you know the the end of the season, and Brown had some success, and then ended up being the guy in twenty twenty one. I don't know. I feel like Shuck probably thought like he wasn't treated as as well as he wanted to be treated it's just interesting though like his parents had ties to oregon and, and oregon state like he was supposed to be the next big duck quarterback and he had a great start and then boom he's gone and he's been hurt you know broke his clavicle back, basically back-to-back -back years at texas tech but when he's been healthy there he's been really good so now he's the out and out starter another year a full off season to get ready for his Super Bowl in week two. I think it's got a lot of intriguing storylines, but I'm not sure I could put my finger on exactly how Ducks fans feel about him. Maybe they feel split about him. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think there's probably no bad feelings because I think people kind of understood, you know, where in I think the arrival of Bo Nix to kind of erased, you know, a whole era of, you know, quarterback carousel, imperfect, you know, I really do think it's one of the big sins of Oregon football. You know, they were changing coaches. 
But the transition from Mark Helfrich to Willie Taggart included Justin Herbert. It was a tremendous advantage for Willie Taggart and then Mario Cristobal. But Oregon never really developed a quarterback in in the wake of, you know, Herbert and Mariota. It just feels like, uh, you know, it feels like uh, there has just been a sort of a uh, revolving door of he's pretty good until they got to Bo Nix. And I'm interested to see if this is just how it's going to be, where they go into the portal and they get a guy for one or two years. Maybe that's just college football and I'm missing something. Coming up, uh, you'll hear Brett Yormark, Big 12 commissioner. Is he a, is he a salesman? Sure. Uh, but how smarmy were his comments at Media Day? We'll unpack it. Grab a podcast of the show wherever you get a podcast. You can uh, find that on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. You can listen to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show wherever you find a podcast. Just Google it. You know how to find it. Uh, <laughs> that's what I should say. Find it. Um, you, you're capable. Uh, Brett Yormark, Big 12 commissioner, caused a stir when he took over the job about a year ago. And he said, we are open for business. He has been a thorn in the side of the Pac-12 with some of his comments. And that conference has largely been a disruptor, or at least tried to be a disruptor. I respect some of Yormark's game. I do. I like his ambition. He's got some moxie. Not afraid to mix it up. I respect those things. I also think that he sometimes sounds like nothing more than a salesman. I want you to hear him talk about the Big 12, and let's unpack some of this. Here he is at Big 12 Media Day this week, talking about not competing with other conferences. He's not competing, but he also says there's no better time to be part of the Big 12. From my perspective, and I've said this before, I'm not really competing with the other Power Five conferences. You know, I want the Big 12 to be the best version of ourselves. And if we can do that, we're in a great place. So it's not about ranking us within the Power Five. But I can tell you this, there's been no better time to be a part of the Big 12 than right now. And um, this thing's gonna grow, it's gonna move forward in a positive way. And I'm really excited about our future. Really excited about the future. Judah, I want to play a couple of these, and I want your take on this as well. But he also went on to say he's protecting the Big 12 footprint. This thing is ever-changing. So what are you doing to protect the Big 12 footprint? Well, we've identified certain championships, as I said in my earlier comments, starting here uh, in the DFW marketplace, doubling down with AT&T is critically important for us. It's an aspirational venue. But we're also going to double down in baseball and, and, and softball and the key sports that are important you know, to the conference. Um, and, and we're doing that. And you know, it is a competitive landscape now. You know, the uh, parts of our geographic footprint. And um, we, we've got to do what we need to do to protect our turf. What's he uh, protecting his turf? He's protecting his turf. Here he is, uh, again, talking about uh, the possibility of adding schools. You wanted to ask you, in terms of BYU being on the western flank of this conference, do you have hopes to find another broadcast partner out in the mountain or Pacific time zones at some point? Another broadcast partner? Or, excuse me, not another institution, I guess, to pair with BYU in that late TV window. Well, first of all, you know, we love BYU, excited about them coming into the 
conference. They bring a different time zone, obviously, which is great for us. We're the only conference in America that's in three time zones. Um, but right now, I mean, there's, there's nothing on the board. I mean, again, you know, we'll, we'll explore all options, but uh, until that point, we love the current makeup and, and we're excited about it. But thank you for the questions. There he is, Brett Yormark. What do you hear, Judah Newby? Well, a few things. One, I'm so Arizona probably not going to the Big Twelve anytime soon, or is he just you know yeah. maybe just trying to low low play that the the Dallas Fort Worth protection I thought was interesting, only because and I know this is it's not a thing, but like I think about SMU a lot to the Pac-12, and I think about their Southwest Conference history and. I don't know why exactly the Big 12 never wants SMU back in its conference, but to me it would make a lot of sense. Like if they wanted to, you know, keep expanding when they lose Oklahoma and Texas, like SMU would be a really natural, you know, unless there's something contractually like they can never join that conference ever again. I don't know, but to me, if SMU goes to the Pac-12, major win for the Pac-12, major loss for Brett Yormark, I think, because I love what SMU could provide and the deep pockets of their collective and everything you've reported on, I think make a whole lot of sense. And to me, he said, we're going to double down on baseball. We're going to double down on softball. Like why, <laughs> why double down on those stuff to, uh, you know, to protect your footprint. So I don't really entirely know the specifics, but it sounds like he's going to give up on at least Arizona coming over, at least for now, unless he's, unless he's lying, which he could be. And, uh, you know, maybe he has seeded the fact that SMU is is Pac-12 bound at some point. Yeah, I feel like San Diego State and SMU end up in the Pac-12 conference. I know Dan Patrick has been talking about this a lot himself. He thinks after the TV deal's done, I think after the deal's done, I think it might even, uh, it could even take a year for San Diego State and SMU to get to the conference. But I don't hear your mark banging the drum now like a guy who thinks he's getting Colorado or Arizona at all. I think he has got to have something to show for all the grandstanding that he's done. But I think they're kind of stalled on where they can expand. Like, unless they're going to take dilutive brands, I don't think that they can go west. Uh, maybe they could take Boise State or Fresno State. I don't know. But does that add value to their conference? And I don't think that they have anywhere else to go. And I and here's the other thing. I think that they were smart to value continuity and stability and go to market early and get their TV done deal their TV deal done early. I think they look smart for that now. But I do think they left money on the table. And I told you, Mark, that when I interviewed him. I, I said, you, you know, did, I think you left money on the table. Do you think? And he disagreed with me. That's fine. We will see. But I kind of feel like they locked themselves into fourth or fifth place with their deal by going early, just re-upping with their existing partners, because I think there was some fear from the Big 12 that they were potentially not going to end up with a deal or that by the, pack, by the time the Pac-12 got to market and did their deal that there wouldn't be a whole lot left over um you know i get the strategy play i think it was smart but let's see how they look three years from now if everything is pivoted to streaming and the pac-12 is getting a lot more money let's see how that, that looks moving forward but i think the ecosystem needs the big 12 it needs the pac-12 it needs the power five the bald-faced truth not here for a long time just a good time